welcome back to the podcast. My name is Fraser Smith, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Kenny. Hello. And today we have a very, very special guest, the man, the myth, the legend, your favorite YugiTuber's favorite YugiTuber, the man behind popular series such as The History of Yu-Gi-Oh!, The History of Jank, Master Duel Masochist, Sealed Showdown, and my personal favorite, The Progression Series. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Alex Simo on the show today, or as most of you may know him as... Simo! <laughs> I missed that intro. Thank you so much for all the uh, for the glorious introduction. How's it going? How's it going, Simo? So this is one of my most excited moments in podcasting. We've been doing this for a little over two years now. And I love the idea of having you as a guest because you're one of the people who I look up to in the content creation space, someplace that I never saw myself being in. Uh, it's very new for me. As you know, I used to be a competitive Yu-Gi-Oh! player only. And honestly, in those days, I looked at people who did content or anything that was not competitive as just like, for me, I was like, this isn't my thing. So I don't quite understand any channel or anything that's not competitive gameplay. And then I realized when the pandemic happened, Happened, and I was already out of Yu-Gi-Oh. I wasn't playing Yu-Gi-Oh at all. I quit for a couple years. Uh, I started to look more into just other Yu-Gi-Oh tubes that are not all based on just, you know, straight up competitive gameplay. And yeah, I found your channel. Stango was actually the person who recommended it to me. So shout out to Stango. But him and Cairo yeah, he, started. Go ahead. He, they did the progression series first, right? Like just yeah. the, behind the scenes, like they just did it having fun. I just want to say real quick. I remember, I don't know, 2012, something like that, saying to Fraser, hey, you should probably start a Yu-Gi-Oh! YouTube channel. And yeah. he was like, absolutely not. And I was like, <laughs> I, I was think so you should. <laughs> Which is now 12 years ago, but it's crazy. So, Simo, first off, how how are you just as of, you know, how are you today? 2024, Happy New Year, everything. But how are you feeling? Yeah, Happy New Year to you as well. I'm, I'm great. Uh, it's funny because, uh, first of all, thank you. I always appreciate uh, just hearing the, I always appreciate hearing from other people, like the impact that, I have, you know, whether it's yeah. on their content creation journey or their lives, because to me, I view what I do as something that doesn't really I, I just talk about Yu-Gi-Oh or play Yu-Gi-Oh or just yep. make Yu-Gi-Oh into content. Right. So it seems so insignificant in like the grander scheme of everything in the world. Uh, but it, it it touches a lot of people's lives. And I think the more I've traveled and the more I've met people on all corners of the earth, it's it's crazy how much something to me that seems so insignificant means to so many people. Um, yeah. So. That's why it, it fuels me to keep sort of upping the bar and finding like the next evolution of what like the Yu-Gi-Oh content sphere is going to look like. So thank you. Yeah. Well, what yeah. I'll say to that is I agree with what you said. When you create content, sometimes people will come up to me at an event uh, or somewhere or just message me personally and say how much they love the podcast or love the channel. And it always surprised me because in my head, I feel the exact same way that you do in terms of I'm just talking about Yu-Gi-Oh or playing Yu-Gi-Oh with my friends, with Stango, with Kenny. This is something that we do anyway with our lives. Right. But this stuff helps people get through their day. Like literally people will tell me yeah. they turn the content on when they're like, I have a lot of truck drivers who listen to the podcast uh, and they'll, they'll turn it on when they're truck driving and, and ask me if we could make our episodes longer, which is like always so funny. Cause me and Kenny are like, listen, we have two hour episodes. We have three hour episodes. We have three hour and 30 minute episodes. We yeah. can't make them any longer than they need to be. But people genuinely use these pieces of content from all the different channels and stuff to get through their work life. Sometimes they're just sorting cars that they sell. Um, and it's, it's just cool to know that even if you put it on as background noise, I always say like, put it on as background noise. If you don't, you know, just have something that just makes it go by faster. That is awesome that people support uh, this sphere because it is a niche community. And then yeah. 
it's like we're a niche community within a niche community. So it's it's very interesting how it all plays out. But yeah, your channel is... I was going to say, and it's also just... It is really crazy that... Uh, I guess the the reach and touch it has. I can't imagine... Because I think... What do you have? 300,000 on YouTube? Something like that. Yeah. I can't imagine... Because like, that's so much more compared to what we currently have. But I've had so many people just DM me talking about like really rough points in their life and yep. things that they've gone through. And, you know, just you have a conversation with them and then you you realize that, like, this thing that you're doing, that you're having fun with and having conversations and making content for people, it really does help people in a way that you didn't really expect it to ever do. So I'm sure, you know, that's for you, like, times 10. So it's Absolutely. it's it's amazing. And it does make you – it does help center the way it all – like, you feel about yourself, I think. Like, it helps kind of bring everything to perspective what you're doing. Yeah, Absolutely. I was going to say, you started your channel over nine years ago, it looks like. I think it was 2014. Yeah, so it's going to be the 10 year anniversary coming up here. Right. And I actually, wild. <laughs> it is wild. So I want to talk about that because I like to know for everyone where it all began. Typically on this podcast, we ask people very basic questions, uh, especially our Yu Gi Oh guests, about like, you know, how'd you start Yu Gi Oh? Did you watch the anime? What's your favorite car, favorite format, stuff like that? And we, we can do that too. But I think sure. you're a special case where I went back to your first video or at least the first one that is visible on your channel, all the way to oh, the God. bottom. And it is yeah. a Tech Tuesday Neospatian Grandma video where your hair is spiked up. You are a kid. You look like a I look kid. like Carpath. Oh, you do. You like Carpath. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. <laughs> you look like Carpath. That was amazing. You actually do. It's so interesting because I don't know how old you were then, but... You look very, very young in that video, and you're just kind of like standing there with the th Xbox 360 in the background. I believe that's Xbox 360. It's like yep. Xbox 360. You're standing up. You're talking about, you know, the same type of stuff that you talk about now, which means to me that you've always had this passion for kind of content creating. Like, it's been over 10 years, and you've always been doing this. So what made you want to turn on a camera one day and record yourself saying, hey, Neospace and Grandma fucks on the format? <laughs> so I guess... I mean, since you want me to go all the way back, I'll go, I'll even give you the extended version. Oh, yeah. So let's say 2005, 2006, 2007. YouTube is very much in its infancy. Obviously, YouTube exists, but it's not nearly, you know, the powerhouse of content yeah. creation that we know it is, it is today. At that Growing, time, I was just watching Naruto episodes on it. <laughs> right? Exactly. Like we'd watch like Toonami and stuff at night. Yeah. But we. I remember my best friend and I, uh, I was super big into like Halo 3, COD 4, all that stuff back in the day. And uh, it was like semi-competitive too. And I remember my friend, my best friend and I, Nick, we always joked about like what it would be like to actually just be YouTube content creators. Because at the time, I mean, we we talk about now how Yu-Gi-Oh is such a niche community. Back then, like 10, 15 years ago, right. all of these spaces were niche communities because people didn't really know like what YouTube was going to be. Back then, YouTube was creating all these dumb cat videos, and it, it still kind of is. <laughs> I mean, TikTok's more like that, too. But it, it then sort of shifted into being these sort of like commentary, more longer form style videos or like how to get better playing X game, things like that. And the, the landscape just sort of to evolve, especially from when you look at it like through the lens of video games especially so we always joked about how cool it would be uh if we actually were to pursue that uh from a, a video game perspective not even from a Yu-Gi-Oh perspective so i was at this time uh probably i think at this point i was like near my hiatus with Yu-Gi-Oh because i took my hiatus with Yu-Gi-Oh at teledad for obvious reasons um yeah. and so we were i was just back then for anyone who who 
knows like cod Four, modern warfare two days this is all we did as kids like our generation growing up that was all anyone talked about if you were like a teenage high school male that was your life and so we were super big on the cod scene and the halo 3 scene just because i feel like that was when competitive gaming at least from a first person shooter perspective was at its peak and that just interested us and so i thought about okay well Maybe there is something here, but obviously back then it wasn't as easy to get into content creation because the tools weren't as easily accessible as they are now. Uh, Back then, Elgato wasn't even like the main name in content creation broadcasting tools for, you know, content creators, Twitch streamers, what have you. I mean, there was like people might remember like the Hapog that you had to like plug in like your RCA cables into if you wanted to record footage (laughs) from a from a gaming perspective. So it initially started with. Uh, me just consuming a lot of YouTube content and looking up to some people in those respective spaces. And that's sort of what piqued my interest into YouTube just as a whole, not necessarily as a career, but just from the perspective of, oh, I think this would be fun to do because it would just be fun. So fast forward a bit as we get, you know, you know, 2009, 2010, 11, 12, 13, I still was obsessed with watching YouTube content, but then my passion for getting back into Yu-Gi-Oh! sort of reignited around the time uh, that I was going to be graduating college. One of my uh, friends who uh, I'm still friends with, but he just lives in a different state, so we're just not as close as we were before. I was talking with him, and I thought, yeah, I think it'd be fun to get back into to Yu-Gi-Oh! at some point, but I just, I don't really know. And before I quit Yu-Gi-Oh! in 2008, I ended up just donating him, like, my whole collection or what was left of it at that point, because oh, wow. I'm like, I don't really need this stuff. Like, here, you can have it, because I know you're a good friend. And he was, like, one of my only friends at the time who really played Yu-Gi-Oh! So I'm like, okay, it's going to be going to a good home, stuff like that. So then, sort of to gift back to me what I gifted him... When I was having this conversation with him talking about, oh, like maybe I'll get back into Yu-Gi-Oh, <laughs> he ends up buying me. I don't know why this was what he picked. He ended up buying me an entire like Blue Eyes Exodia Turbo deck for like 2013, <laughs> 2014. <laughs> just, and I'm like, oh, this is really nice of you. Thank you. He's like, just go take this to locals and see how it is. I'm like, all right, cool. So I ended up going to a locals. I had a great time. Like I got stomped. I maybe like resolved Exodia one time. But honestly, if you're playing Yu-Gi-Oh, that's all that matters. At that yes. Point. If you resolve it uh, once, it's the best feeling in the world. <laughs> that you, exact- can lose, you, you can lose nine out of 10 matches. As long as you resolve that one time, you feel like you won that. Day. Yep. So that exact same deck, I also took the locals. Me and Fraser, which were is so with it. crazy, by the way. That when and- Simo said it, I was like, um, "That's oddly specific and oddly yeah. exactly what Kenny was using." So I took that exact same deck, the locals, and there was this kid there. I remember, I'll never forget this one day. I remember his name, but I won't say it. But he was really like high on his high on his horse, and he was had like this whole box of pizza, and he was doing people for money, and then he was like, and then so I be- he was basically trying to duel people for money, and then I said, sure. "I'll duel you for your box of pizza." And then he was like, okay. And I was just like, all right, look, we'll sit down two out of three. Like winner gets the box. Or, and like, if I lose, I just pay for the box. He was like, all right. Mm-hmm. So we sit down, we start dueling and literally turn one. I exodia him. He was like, and his whole face just dropped. <laughs> he was like, oh, come on. Like, I didn't know you were going to be playing. Like, I thought we were going to play Yu-Gi-Oh. I was like, we're playing Yu-Gi-Oh, baby. I was, I was like, we're playing Yu-Gi-Oh. Bruh. I'm going to get me that box of pizza. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. That's so, amazing. So, Simo, so you come back with this Exodia Dragon deck uh, in 2013. So this is around Dragon Lord time, or is it before that? 
I think it was around Dragon Ruler time because I remember I have a memory of the the apartment that we lived in at the time. I remember watching the World uh, Championship for Dragon Ruler, so yeah. it may have been like either immediately after or preceding that. So it was it was around that time. Gotcha. We ended up we ended up moving houses into the house that the video you're referring to, where I have like the Xbox and I think there's even like a COD poster. Like, there is stuff is blatantly on the wall. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, it's I think t- it was like a like black box piece. Yeah, so I think it was like a Black Ops 2 poster because that was like the game that was out at the time, which is yeah. a great game, by the way. But anyway, um, so at the time, again, I'm just finishing my my undergrad and I was just, as I was re-immersing myself with Yu-Gi-Oh! Because as anyone knows who takes a longer-ish break, you've missed a lot. There's a lot of cards and, you know, a lot of summoning mechanics depending on how long you've been out of the game uh, or if you haven't kept up with it over time that you need to reimmerse yourself with. And so I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I've got the itch again. The cardboard crack worked. Let me go ahead and, like, hmm. see, you know, what I need to do to actually really start playing again and not just Exodia Turbo people. So as I go to youtube of all places to start finding information because for everything else that i had been doing up until that point that was gaming adjacent that's where i was getting a lot of my information for when it came to gaming stuff but then i noticed that at the time Yu-Gi-Oh content on youtube didn't really exist and that's not to say that there weren't people making content there's some of the granddaddies that are still making content today that were on youtube but that was really it. There wasn't really, uh, I guess, the type of content that I personally wanted to consume. And I that, and sort of like a light bulb went off in my head. And I thought, well, I mean, I could just make the content. And that's good because I've always felt that if you can teach the content, then obviously, you know, the content to an extent. So mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, cool. Let me just try to figure this out. And then I, I think I just had a random. I don't even think it was my it was either my iPhone or my like, I think I randomly had a GoPro or my parents had a GoPro or something. Mm-hmm. We just threw that up on some tripod that it didn't fit on. And I just started screaming at the camera like a lunatic and 300,000 subscribers. Ten years hey. later, here we are. Amazing. <laughs> that is it was amazing. an awesome bit of scream as a, as a follow up to that story. I have to ask, and maybe you were going to get to this. The second video is that Simo is going to be the next biggest YouTuber. <laughs> And so I, I watched that video. It's like a 40-second video. Mm-hmm. So apparently, I guess you were in a competition or something. And I tried watching the video that you link in your description, but that video is now private. Okay. So you can't sure. see it. So so I guess I just want to know, what was that competition? What, like, what, what, what was that? Yeah, so that was part two. So what happened afterwards was immediately after I made this decision to start making this content, one of the YouTubers at the time, uh, Underworld6667, that they might ring a bell for some people. Oh, yeah. He, he was hosting a contest called The Next Great Yu-Gi-Tuber, which is the, essentially like the American Idol of Yu-Gi-Oh! YouTubers, like up and coming. <laughs> so the whole concept was that I think he picked either, I think he picked 32 YouTubers, which is insane to think about that. You know, I know as a content creator, working with 32 other people in any capacity oh, is possible. So I think I was like the 25th or 27th person that got accepted into it. And so the whole contest was, it was, I believe, sort of like a bracket style challenge. And people would, there would be a topic of like a video that needs to be created. And then from there, you were sort of like matched up against another person of the 32. And whoever got the most votes would move on into the bracket. Mm. And so essentially, it would go all the way until there was only one person left. And they would be crowned like the next right Yu-Gi-Oh! Yeah, it was a cool concept. I think it's just execution wise it was really difficult to execute on which i i don't think there was another one after it and additionally working with 32 other people who aren't as like experienced working in the youtube sphere i could see it being just like a massive headache and undertaking which is why probably didn't really see any returning success Mm -hmm. but in any case i didn't end up winning the whole competition i got entered into it i think i made it all the way to like the top eight 
I don't think I made it past that. I don't remember. But in any case, it acted as this incredible springboard to my channel because I ended up going from uh, like seven. I think the video where I got in, I think I had seven subscribers at that point. And then I think I went up to like 50 or 100 once it was announced that I was going to be in it. And then from the videos that I had to create in that competition to go further in the bracket, I think I ended up getting my first few thousand subscribers within like those next following weeks. And that's for anyone who does content creation, you know that just getting your first few thousand subscribers is like a huge snowball to already have like rolling. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then at that point, I sort of just kept playing off the momentum of the early springboard that I had, which I'm very grateful for because I mean, I don't know what the direction of my channel would have been if I didn't have that otherwise. Um, And so, yeah, so like I said, I ended up winning the whole thing, but the initial exposure, because I believe Underworld had anywhere from 30 to 40,000 subscribers on his channel. And so again, just that initial exposure on uh, someone whose channel is as big as his, uh, that was enough to really just get the snowball rolling. That is awesome. That must have felt incredible at the time. Like when it hit that hundred, you were probably like, Oh my. It, oh, oh, yeah. There's some so video good. of me going, 50 subscribers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's authentic, awesome. too. So, I have yeah. a question for you because when I watched that, uh, the Grand Mole Tech Tuesday video, right? You're standing there, you're talking, and it struck me after a while because the video is three minutes long. It's not very long. So, guys, if you haven't seen it, just go to his channel, you know, sort it by oldest, and then it'll be that video right there. Um, it's only three minutes long. And As I was watching it, I noticed that there isn't a lot of editing or anything like that because, one, it's nine years old. So the world is very, very different on, you know, quality of content that people put out back then. Like you said, back then, especially even earlier than that, it was a lot of cat videos, a lot of Charlie bit me and stuff like that. Right. But you are standing there in a video and you're talking about grandma and how it works against the meta and there is like some editing where you you know you have the cards that you were talking about getting bounced back you talk about abyss lindy and and I, one of the things i noticed immediately i was like oh simo is a fucking sailor just like i am like i <laughs> love to use profanity and looking at young you go off you were going in you were talking about this other monster has a fat ass and i was just that was like the gear gear that's the gear the gear, 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 gear armor, fat armor. Ass. <laughs> and it's so funny so spoiler alert for people who haven't seen it yet we recorded um the progression series episode seven for our version of it, which by the way, shout out to you for creating such a fantastic thing because yeah, fun. Oh, it is by far the most <laughs> fun I've had in Yu-Gi-Oh. This is so crazy that doing these things that are not mainstream competitive Yu-Gi-Oh has brought me more joy than competitive Yu-Gi-Oh has ever brought me. That's if I'm how being I feel. completely honest. And I've played yeah. and topped YCSs and nationals and ARGs and all these other things. And sure, that feels nice, but honestly, there's something special about just like playing Yu-Gi-Oh with your friends and not having the pressure to perform yeah. at like a top level, not having a bunch of people surrounding you, watching you, waiting to see if you make a misplay or wanting to criticize what you do or wanting to know how you lost or all of that stuff that goes into it. It's a, it's a different it's a different mental space to just play the game that I played as a kid without the stakes and the pressure of it all. Uh, but I say all that to say. Your personality in that video is very consistent with like who you are still today, which is good. But also, there wasn't a point where I feel like it seemed like it was scripted. It almost seemed like you were freestyling it, and I couldn't tell. So I wanted to ask you, in that first video from nine years ago, are, did you like prep a speech for it? Or, or are you just like off the dome speaking in that camera? I'm very, very intrigued by that. Uh, it was all off the cuff. So I had, I think, maybe a couple of bullet points prepared in my head. So I knew like the flow of like how I wanted the video to go. Yeah. But I my undergrad is in communication studies like slash speech. And so I think that sort of helped in terms of building my presence with an audience because I know how to 
you know, sort of have a presence in front of an audience naturally. So whether it's in person or in this case, virtually, that uh, I think that's sort of carried through in that regard. And so I think I was nervous, but at the same time, it was it, it wasn't too unnatural because I was already used to being in environments like that. So at, at that point, what's staring at a camera versus being in front of, you know, hundreds of people in person performing in like, you know, speech competitions. Interesting. Like yeah. There, so, yeah. It's funny because that example is uh, obviously just standing alone in a room in a camera is easier than being in front of 100 people because like the pressure of them looking at you isn't there. But there's something I think everybody goes through that first time if they f- start streaming or, or YouTubing or whatever is it feels really weird at first just talking to yourself in a room, like just talking at the camera and like, hey, guys, welcome back. Nice to see you again. And, <laughs> and it's there's like, no guys around. There's nobody there are here. no guys. There are zero. There's approximately zero guys. <laughs> Yeah, no, that is definitely true. At least for at least for me, when I first did a video without Stango. So when we first started doing um, Yu-Gi-Oh content on the I'm Their Podcast YouTube channel, uh, it was very weird because in the beginning I had Stango, and then I remember one day he couldn't record me. So I was like, "Oh shit, what am I going to do now? I want to put a video out today because I was doing a video every day type of thing, you know, to get get that YouTube momentum, the algorithm going." So I was doing sure. a video every day, and he wasn't around, so I was like. Well, I could technically do it myself, but who wants to just see me by myself play Yu-Gi-Oh! on Dueling Book or whatever? And I tried it, and yes, it felt very, very awkward because I realized I have to talk when I normally would be silent. Like, when I'm by myself and I play Yu-Gi-Oh!, right? Let's say if I was going on, if I was playing a tournament, uh, there's a bunch of Edison Online tournaments, Deck Devastator, stuff like that, RBET. When I play those tournaments, right, and I'm in my room, I'm just dueling. I'm not speaking. I'm just kind of playing the game on Dueling Book with no words. And I realized that's boring as hell, right? Like for for content purposes, no one wants to just see me sitting there at a computer table, not saying a single thing, but just making plays. Because at that point, what's the difference between watching, you know, a replay, right? Like that could just be a replay at that point. So I realized I had to speak. And then that's when I had to get more comfortable with the idea of, yeah, no one's around. I don't have anyone to banter with. I don't have Stango. I don't have Kenny. I'm just speaking, you know, my thoughts. And I realized, well, I like to talk. Like I just like to talk. So it's actually not as bad when you just realize I'm just going to talk anyway. Uh, real quick though, I realized I didn't finish my point earlier about uh, us doing a progression series. So in episode seven, the one that will soon be out, if you're hearing this, it probably is out by now, but it's on Pharaonic Guardian. And in that episode, Kenny, <laughs> Kenny packs Gravekeeper's Guard. And in that video, he starts talking about how it has a really fat ass. And I was so shocked when I watched your Neospatian Grandma versus the Gear Gear Armor video because nine years ago, you were like, it has a really fat ass. And then I said, Kenny, what are the odds that today we're doing a podcast episode with Simo? I just watched this, his literally his oldest video ever. And now I'm seeing the same thing that, you know, we had hey. to... Same they have the happen. same defense that they do. <laughs> yeah, Those two monsters a, have the same defense. It's just crazy that you guys use the exact same language, but yeah, that is, that is I'm interesting. In flat circle. It is. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, okay. Another question for you that I had is what inspired you to make a lot of these series? Because I mentioned them in the intro. You have the history of Yu-Gi-Oh! The history of Jank, uh, Master Duel Mascus, which is one of the newer ones since Master Duel is relatively still new. Uh, the progression series, what, like what kind of, how did you get the ideas for these things? Like, what what did it start as? Sure. I think one thing quickly I want to go back and touch on yep. was uh, when you're talking about my first video, I wanted the video, if I was going to throw myself into the YouTube sphere, I think I wanted to differentiate myself to a degree because, again, at the time with the granddaddies of UVTubing making their content, a lot of it was very much just voiceover over dueling network back 
then because Dueling Book didn't exist, or just voiceover over something. Like some, of, a lot of these people weren't even really using face cams at the time. Yeah. And so I, I felt it was sort of important to just put a face behind the voice. So then that way I can just build that connection with the audience. But also too, you mentioned how I just had the, the giant card images like superimposed on the screen. I wanted it to just have like a higher degree of like, professionalism and polish i say higher degree when it was like if you look at it you're gonna be like oh wow not really but hey, for back, back then, then it was actually it was sort of a leap all things considered back yeah. then for like from a yugi tubing perspective uh so that that was sort of you know i guess in my uh sort of in my alignment of wanting to always like try to improve whatever it is that i'm doing but uh and that, and that sort of gets back to the point of what you were just asking about with all these series that came out. So what ended up happening was initially a lot of my earlier content was I wanted to act as the bridge between like the casual and the competitive player. I by no means was like a great person, but what I am really good at is taking a lot of information and breaking it down and synthesizing it so that a lot of people can understand it very well. Mm. So I sort of likened myself to like the ESPN of Yu-Gi-Oh in a way where I was almost like just like an announcer or like a analyst where I I was taking all the data from all of these tournaments and such and breaking it down, distilling it so that it could be presented in a form that a lot of people could easily digest so that they didn't have to go and find a lot of that stuff out themselves. And so a lot of like the earlier content was doing a lot of those meta breakdowns, uh, just introductions to like different decks and archetypes and showing off very basic combos so that people just got a general gist of like what Salomon Great does, what Sky Striker does, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was a lot of um my content pre COVID and COVID was definitely a, a turning point for not, not just me, but for, you know, a lot of people in the world. But when COVID happened, competitive Yu-Gi-Oh essentially just ceased to exist yep. because you no know, tournaments, the only tournaments there were, I actually ended up throwing a tournament to sort of just kind of get lift people's spirits a bit. Cause everyone is yeah, just, yeah. COVID was such a dark time for everyone. So yeah. I remember I threw the Crush Card Cup, which is a 512 person tournament. I ran by myself, uh, never wow. doing that again, by the way. Uh, I had no help. I had, I literally was like every morning I'd wake up, I'd be posting like who won. Cause it was each player had like uh, each match had like 48 hours to complete. So I was doing all of that myself. I literally did not sleep for like a week. It oh was terrible, gosh. but it was cool. Cause a lot of people got to like get their competitive Yu-Gi-Oh fix. And so they were yeah. very grateful for that. Um, but in any case, I competitive Yu-Gi-Oh's at this point for all intents and purposes dead because we didn't have remote duels yet. We didn't know if we were going to get remote duels at this point. The closest thing to anything that was sort of like competitive coverage were like, I believe the luxury events, but those also didn't come to a little bit later either. And so it's like, well, now what the hell do we do? And so I wanted to sort of pivot my content so that it wasn't reliant on the competitive side of things and just make it still Yu-Gi-Oh content, but about something else. And so what happened was Gage and I were just brainstorming ideas for different content. Gage Nim Nim for people. Yep, who shout know. out to Gage. Um, I know him very well. Yeah, he used to Gage, be on ARG with me. Fantastic person. Fantastic human. One of my best friends of the past several years because I've been glued to him every Monday playing Prague. <laughs> um, so... I, I I think he was actually in Vegas. I think there was like a tournament going on. And so he was in town. And I remember we were in my room and we were sort of just like spitballing ideas back and forth of like just other stuff we could come up with. This is like right around the time where he also came up with Sealed Only or it was like either he had just like start, released the first episode like immediately before that. But I forget the exact timeline. So he was doing his thing with Sealed Only, which was cool. And so I was trying to think about what would be the next thing for me. And so uh, for anyone who's familiar with old school RuneScape, uh, there was a series of people on youtube who did something where uh they started on fresh accounts and they would play for like four hours at a time and at the end of the four hours regardless of wherever they were in the account they would fight each other 
And then the next episode was them doing four hours of additional progress then fighting each other again. And they literally just kept progressing through the game, fighting every single episode, four hours of progress at a time until eventually it it culminated into some like one epic battle to see like who ends up like winning the whole series type thing. And so it sort of came up between the two of us, we sort of like took that. We're like, we, cause him and I were both obsessed with watching those types of series. And we're like, well, what if we just do this, but like with Yu-Gi-Oh and we sort of just like ran with it. And we didn't know like if it was going to be entertaining to watch, but we just thought it would be cool conceptually to start all the way at legend of blue eyes, only have the legend of blue eyes cards, then duel each other. Then we open a box of metal Raiders, add that to the collection, duel each other, magic ruler, et cetera, et cetera. And so we we made the first episode. We had a great time. Skull Redbird beatdown. You know, it's a meme yep. now. Uh, and then that episode <laughs> just took off. People were like, this is so cool. Like, this is so much fun. I did this with my friends. I'm having the best time. Uh, and then that was, I think Prague is almost four years old now. Yeah, crazy. I think we're getting to the, which is insane to think. Yeah, because we started it right. Yeah, like right when COVID happened. So like so that was March or April. Yeah. Yeah. And That's so, uh, and that was, that was how Prague started. And it, well, like I said, we didn't expect that it was going to take off the way that it did. We just thought, Hey, this is a fun way for the two of us to just shoot the shit and play Yu-Gi-Oh. And, uh, and there we go. So it's oh, funny you say that skull red bird beat down is fucking real because can it is I, real. You know, we had to experience that week one. It is wild with 1550 will make you do like I'm opening boxes. Cause I had to use a mulligan ticket on episode one. Cause I didn't get pot of greed or anything. I got nothing out of my first box. So I used the mulligan oh ticket God. to kind of reopen. And I'm like, man, please give me skull red bird. Like I'm feeding like a crackhead for fucking skull red birds. Episode one. Like I'm literally scratching my damn wrist. Like, please give me three skull red birds, please. Not anymore. Those skull red bird <laughs> yeah like it's that crazy episode one and then it's funny because a couple episodes later he fucking deadpan opens yada garasu like it was like he opens yada and he's like, like oh he's like oh cool yada yeah all right next because i was like i don't know if this is actually going to be good in the context i know yada in the history of Yu-Gi-Oh, yada is obviously one of the most iconic cards everyone knows the yada sure. lock every player who's played knows the yada lock but i was thinking like we're in a format that is so specific and is so different from anything i've ever played and in my crazy Yu-Gi-Oh brain i'm like how am i going to get a direct attack off when kenny plays three giant germs three giant rats he walls up all the time you know what i mean like even jirai guma i'm like how am i going to get yeah. 200 in to skip his draw phase so i didn't think it was good spoiler alert if you haven't seen episode six of the progression (laughs) series legacy of darkness i do basically yada lock turn one mind you like literally just heavy storm attack directly because he didn't put a monster in the field and it was like oh no so yeah that is that is a very interesting thing i wanted to comment on something that you said earlier though about um, your voice and doing the ESPN thing. You actually do have one of those announcer kind of voices. Thank I never kind of could pinpoint, but now that you've said it, it makes sense to me because my dad used to watch, you know, first take and all that stuff every sure. single morning. Sure. But when I'm getting ready for school, you would just hear ESPN playing in the house. And so you have that kind of voice, which I think makes people feel welcome into like your channel and also endearing, you know, you have that kind of like inviting voice. Um, But that that is actually important, too. That's an important skill. Almost. I feel like so you did say that you majored in communications. Yes. And when you were doing that, I'm assuming that simultaneously you were also making your Yu-Gi-Oh content at the same time. Yeah, so uh, I believe if it's 2014, I graduated in 2015, so it was my senior year then most likely, or if anything, the tail end of my junior year when mm-hmm. I started making the content. And so what ended up happening was, uh, was still making content, but I don't think I was really making content with any sort of uh, regularity. I think it was pretty erratic when I was uploading. I didn't have like a set schedule or anything. Right. Um, I, I think one other 
like piece it, this may sound crazy but i think one other piece of content that i sort of innovated was the whole idea of like the ban list reaction video because mm-hmm. i don't really think that existed prior to uh that happening and now we treat ban list reactions like a holiday right yes. it's like christmas for us because it's like yes we get a ban list like this is so exciting the game's gonna change yada yada whatever um but back then there wasn't really like i sort of like turned it into an event and like more of a spectacle i should say like maybe some people would cover it but it wasn't like as soon as it's out like here's like what's going on right and so that so that again so i was making like a couple of like different pieces of content i continued tech tuesday i think i did like throwback thursday which was i took dumb anime cards that like if they were in the real game how broken they would be it's just like fun stuff like that seal of ori calcos (laughs) (laughs) have you ever read roll of fate or any of those other cards man some of those not off the top of my head no but i know (laughs) in the anime seal of ori calcos was not okay when it came out in the tcg it was just like nobody played it i'm pretty sure i did like dumb spit takes in those videos too It, it was it was a good time um but anyway so what happened was as i graduated college in 2015 uh my girlfriend at the time was able to get me a a, the job that the company she was working for was massively hiring just because they were like uh they were a newer ish like tech-ish company that Mm -hmm. was looking to just really onboard a lot of people very quickly she already worked for them she's like hey i can get you into this job i'm like okay cool and it was like a very decent job for just immediately finishing college like it would be a job that anyone would be happy with and i was very good at that job but at the same time it was one of those jobs where i was overworked into oblivion because they knew i was good at the job and so Mm. they're like oh hey we're gonna give you the work of three people and pay you the same amount i'm like great i had a a familiar there was a commission scale, but it wasn't really commensurate with the amount of effort that I was putting into it. Right. In any case, so I knew very early on in that position that I did not want to be stuck doing that job. And so I sort of hunkered down and went into a mode where I was waking up. I was filming videos. I worked a 12 to 9, so it was an annoying swing shift. So I woke up, like, ate breakfast, recorded videos in the morning because I didn't use artificial lighting. I had a window in my room, and so I used the light coming in from the window to film in the morning Mm -hmm. just because the lighting looked good. So I'd film the videos. I'd leave for work. I'd work 12 to 9. I'd come home. I'd edit the videos, and then I'd go to bed. And I essentially repeated that process for, I want to say, like, almost two years where that's all I was doing. I was actually, like, not really very communicative with, like, my friends, like, my my Uh, friends like near home and such i sort of like just went into a hole where this is like all i was doing because i knew i just wanted to build something better for myself and at this point i believe i was uploading three days a week i think it was like monday wednesday friday maybe like an occasional extra video every now and then um but just two years of just pounding the pavement and just being on the content grind and uh at one point, the revenue from YouTube ended up eclipsing what I was making in that job. Wow. And I thought, well, if I quit this job, then I can go full time with YouTube because I was only really doing it part time, technically. Mm-hmm. And then I can just really put the pedal to the metal. Then the biggest barrier at that point was convincing my parents. And my parents are very open people. And they're I'm very grateful that I was in a very supportive family because they understand what I do, but they don't understand the extent of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And sure. so yeah. I remember like I sort of like gave them a little presentation of like, OK, here's what I want to do. And here's why I want to like convince you to let me do this, because I wasn't really expecting them to say no, because I was still living with them at the time. But I also just sort of wanted to preemptively have any answers to any questions that they had. And I know it's content creation still for a lot of uh, you know people, the older generations is sort of 
unknown and they don't right. really like fully comprehend it's everything not doctor about or it. lawyer yeah. your parents always right. want you to be one of those professions that they precisely. know makes a lot of money or something in stem precisely you, know. you, you need to have a presentation ready for when your dad yes. goes why are you quitting your job right. <laughs> and so um I, I i gave them the whole rundown they were very supportive like i said i wasn't expecting them to say no they they were like yeah we get it like we want you to be happy with what you're doing so go for it so again i'm very grateful i'm in that position because maybe a lot of other people in a similar position wouldn't have as supportive of a, a support system um and then we just we sent it i quit that job and that was like one of the happiest days of my life i remember <laughs> i walked in we had like work laptops i remember i walked in just dropped my laptop at the secretary's oh, desk <laughs> and i just and she's just like do you need to see your boss? I'm like, nope. And I just turned around. I don't and have a boss. Oh, I love that. And then in order, in order, my supervisor called me. My manager called me. The junior director called me. The senior director Damn. called me. It went like all the way up because like they knew the golden goose had like just left. Yeah. And so the only person that I really had a modicum of respect for was the senior director because he was the one who was actually um, allowing me to work on projects that were actually going to like better things and help me move into like a position that would have been better than what I was doing. So yeah. I ended up having a discussion with him and he's like, I totally understand. I don't want to stop you because like you sound, this is you sound like this is like what you really want to do. And I was like, not expecting him to say that. I thought he was going to try to like convince me to come back. Um, but no, I remember not far from where I used to work, there was a park. And I remember I went and just like, it was like middle of the day. It was like noon. And I just went and swung on the swings and there was no one in this park. And I remember that was like one of the most freeing, liberating moments of my life because oh, I knew that, that sounds amazing. That part of my life was over where, cause it was really stressful. And there was, it was, there was so much to it that I was just this gigantic weight had just been lifted from my shoulders. I remember just swinging on that swing and knowing that like, this is it. Like I get to go to the next level and I get to actually, I had to put my money where my mouth is essentially and see yeah. like, can yeah. I actually make no, this so work? You know, right now you are speaking to a lot of people um, who are listening to this. A lot of people who feel the exact same way where they have this job that they're not exactly happy with and they've been thinking about making a move into something else. Maybe it'd be a different career. Maybe it'd be um, something entrepreneurial like this. Uh, but there are a lot of people out there who have that exact same feeling of you're just feeling like you're you're not taken care of at work. You're a little bit mistreated, maybe overworked, maybe not compensated well enough. I've been there in several different instances and I've had to stand up for myself and complain because corporate America can play a very nasty game with people's lives. And at the end of the day, the older you get, you realize that time is very valuable. Okay. Yes. And they will replace you no matter what. So do not feel bad if you need to make a move that is best for yourself. I think that's like the moral of the story there is when you feel like, you know, your passion is elsewhere or your happiness is elsewhere. You, you sometimes just have to make that move. And that is something that I am working towards myself. Like I would love to not have to be an accountant anymore. Like right now I'm still a full-time accountant and yes, you know, that job does pay a decent amount of money and everything like that. I've been doing it for about 12 years now. Um, but there are, there are times where I'm just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. Like, mm -hmm. you know, every, every once in a while I get a, a inkling of, I could just quit right now and go full on, like do something else. But I still have this kind of bond where I'm like, uh, but you've been doing so long, you know, you're good at it. Just like you said, like you were good at your job. It wasn't that you weren't good at it, but it's just like, do you feel like you're living your life to the fullest at, in this, right. in this place? And I think that now seeing what you do now and the passion that you have for doing it with your channel and everything like that, it's amazing. And that story about just like the, the weight being lifted off your shoulders. I think that that's going to speak to a lot of people who want to know what that feels like. Now I want to put a, a couple asterisks here because I know you are a very uh, calculating conservative person. You are not yes, someone who I likes am. to gamble. 
I am very similar when it comes to uh, financial decisions. And yep. so I dis- I made the decision that I had a pretty sizable nest egg built up. And I also waited until that YouTube revenue exceeded like what I was making consistently for a few months before making that leap. So I was trying to hedge as much in favor conservatively, knowing that it was a calculated risk, but it was something that the returns were a lot higher if I made the jump rather than stayed. And the ironic part is that company went out of business. Oh, (laughs) wow. So it was going to go anyway. Exactly. So uh, people always talk about from the perspective of like job security when they work for, you know, your typical corporate America jobs and such. But it's like at the end of the day, you don't know if that company is going to exist in the future. Yep. At any point, they can fire you for any reason. So yep, at will. Do you, I'm, I'm is hired, really? At yeah. At will employees. Yeah. So like, yeah. are you really as secure as it seems compared to doing something on like on your own, whether it's content creation or, you know, starting your own business or what have you. Again, I think it really just depends on people's level of risk tolerance and such. Uh, so I just wanted to, you know, put a couple asterisks there that like, yeah. I didn't just like leap, just yes. like leap of faith with no think. There was a lot of planning and thinking that went behind it, that decision. Yeah. It's do- funny. Oh, go ahead, Kenny. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's funny. Cause I don't know how this keeps happening, but me and Fraser keep talking about fuck jobs. Like, <laughs> yeah, we've been, this keeps we've been heavy on the last month of the podcast. For some reason, three of the last like six episodes that we've recorded have been talking about this exact topic that you just yeah, spoke to us about. And it's not, it's not, you know, it's not fuck working. It's just like the, the idea of, that people kind of force on you. Like you said, the job security thing, right? It's just not real because they could go out of business. They can fire you whenever you want. Like something you get tricked into thinking even before you're old enough to work, I think, is yep. like this whole idea that you have to give a two weeks notice. You have to give a two weeks notice with the, whoever it is because you don't want to burn a bridge or whatever. But something that really frustrated me when I got into the working world is that they don't have to give me a two week notice. <laughs> no. They don't they don't have to tell me that I'm not gonna be able to pay rent this month. They're they literally you'll go to work one day and they'll be like, Hey, by the way, like uh we don't have room for you anymore, like this or that happened, whatever excuse they have, and they're like, you know, you have to go. And then it's like I've well, hold on, it. wait a second. I've got rent and bills and food and family, and they're like, Yeah, well, you know, and you're like, Can I get a two weeks notice? No. Okay. That's That's just how it works. All those systems are in place to protect the companies at the end of the day. That's exactly right. And we talked about that exact thing. A lot of the things that you were told as a younger person about two weeks notice and don't discuss your salary with your friends at at work or your your fellow coworkers and stuff like that. These are all things that only if you think about it, it's very unilateral. It it benefits the people at the top to not have you guys discuss, you know, what each other is making because somebody might be underpaid doing the exact same work. And like, that's just not fair. In 2024, we know that these things are not okay and so people are speaking up about it so like kenny said it's not necessarily a fuck work thing because i don't want to get on i don't i never want to get on a show and say to people quit your job right because that is that is not what i would do i I have not quit my job i still make whatever you know i still do my job i've been doing it for 12 years i go every single day i have to go in if i do and i i get up and i turn my computer on when i work from home so it's like for me you have to be responsible so i just want to say like to put it out there, all of us on this show, all three of us right now, if you have the feeling that you do want to pursue something else, maybe test it out first, right? Is like, do your due diligence, see how it goes within this other entrepreneurial field, if that's what you want to do, or if you're going to switch over to some kind of other trade or take, you know, classes to get another degree and pivot, then do that while you still maintain your living that you currently have. And yes, it is going to suck, but Mm -hmm. that's just life. You have to bunker down sometimes and deal with it. And, and, and those two years where you said you were waking up early because the sunlight was in your room so you could record a video, then you would go to work from 12 to 9 to you would come home and edit it for two years straight. That takes discipline. And that's what it takes 
to have anything that's worth having in life in general. You're going to have to sacrifice. You cannot always have fun. You said you didn't really get to see your friends like that. There's not as much partying. There's not as much going out. There's not as much spending money on frivolous things. You have to be like, I want a future for myself that is better than the one that I currently see. And in order to do that, I am going to have to cut down on the fun part of life that I'm, you know, foregoing where my friends might be doing a bunch of stuff that they're posting all the time and they're traveling and they're doing all these cool things. You might not have to, you might have to not do those things for a while so that you can have a better um, future for yourself. Not to get all like preachy, but yeah. yeah. I mean, the saying goes, I, th- I don't, I'm sure my dad didn't make it up, but I've always heard my dad say it. Uh, Nothing worth having comes easy. Yeah, it's true. I agree. It's very true. I think Frazier, I think you'll appreciate this uh, being an accountant. It's really a cost benefit analysis for your life, right? <laughs> yeah. the, way, the way I looked at it was, okay, if things go south and don't take off on YouTube, what's the worst case scenario? I go back and get another job. Correct. Okay. It's not like your degree That's, went anywhere, right? No, like, precisely. And it's not like I wouldn't be incapable of finding another position that maybe made as much or similar amount of pay right, to what I was right. making at that time. If you know you're going based off if that's like your primary motive or finding something that you enjoy, even if it means taking a pay cut, whatever it is. But my, the way I rationalized it was, okay, I do this. Let's say I do YouTube for a year and say it's not really panning out the way I thought it was going to. Well, then I can reassess and say I could just stop or I can just go back to the working world, you know, do what I was doing before, kind of have a little bit of both. Or if it really doesn't pan out and I become washed up, then <laughs> I just go back and get a regular job. Like it's yeah, the, yeah. the worst case scenario. The worst scenario is is where I already was. Right, so like, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Right. That point. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I like that you're saying the worst case scenario is that I, my degree or whatever, the job that I had, I can get that same type of job just somewhere else. Like, obviously, right. you wouldn't go back to the same company. Some people actually do. But, you know, you could find that same type of job. There. If yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> no. Yes, in your case. I have a question, though. Uh, yeah. So you did bunker down and you, you quit your job. You had this freeing moment. You go on a swing. After that... How did it go? Now, we're in 2024 right now. I can see that you have over 300,000 subscribers on YouTube, but I'm talking about that first year where you quit your job. Tell me what that was like. It Was there fear? Was there like, you know, some hard moments? Were there, was it just like, did it actually just blossom into exactly the way you might have predicted? Like, I just want to know what that journey was like, because I'm sure people are interested to know when you quit your job, most people are just afraid to do it. Like that, and I'm speaking from experience, like I am afraid sure. to literally quit my job. And I'm not, obviously, I'm not there yet, right? Our YouTube channel is still very small. Our content creation is still very small. But perhaps one day, you never know what the future may hold. But what was that first That's year like for you? Fraser, I was on cloud nine, man. It was, <laughs> like, I just get to make Yu-Gi-Oh content. Like, are you serious? Like, this was, that was, compared to what I was doing before, that, that was night and day. Because it's like, I just get to make Yu-Gi-Oh content. This is yeah. so much fun. And so I think that really carried, that passion and that excitement and that enthusiasm really just carried over into uh, the content, but then also the results at the same time, because it's crazy. If I go back and look at my analytics, like the exact point where I decided to like go full time, there's like this spike, like almost wow. vertically of like the number. Well, it kind of makes sense because I'm posting like five times a week versus three. So that kind of naturally is going to happen anyway. But I think the spike was a lot sharper than I was anticipating, like on all analytical fronts. So uh, and so then that just motivated me more. I'm like, oh, man, like this is what happens when I go like full time. Like, this is great. And so that just like gave me all the enthusiasm. Uh, like all the uh 
just all the, the all the fuel I needed to yes. just to just go crazy with it at that point. So then I was uploading like five days a week, sometimes six or seven, depending on like if there was any other stuff I wanted to talk about that came up. And then that was it. Then we just we just sent it. It was awesome. Were you editing your videos? Were you I'm assuming in the beginning or at least in, around this time, you were the person editing this stuff, right? So <laughs> this is gonna blow a lot of people's minds. All the way up until the last two years, I was a one-man show. I was it was up until I think so even when I started Prague history and then I think it was around the point where I started Jank as well. I was editing all of that myself, filming, recording, editing. I was literally doing it all, obviously with the help of my co-host, but right, right, right. Uh, all the back end stuff was all me. And then it got to the point where I realized I can't do this all myself. This yeah. is getting insane. So then I ended up, uh, I'm pretty sure I just made a community post on Twitter and on YouTube, just looking for help. And I ended up finding my first editor, Sam, who lives in uh, the UK and he's wonderful. Uh, I'm not his only client, but I'm, I'm like his like smaller client. Cause he edits for a much larger YouTuber, but he just loves Yu-Gi-Oh and wanted to edit Prague and he does a great job editing Prague. So, uh, found him and I'm like, okay, cool. He's doing Prague. And then I found, uh, my second editor, Gareth, who actually lives in New Zealand and he was doing, uh, all the editing for both history and jank because they're both pretty identical series in terms right. of like the structure of them, just different content. And so then I realized, Oh, I don't have to edit anymore. I can make more content. <laughs> this is insane. So then that's when I made, so that's when I made field showdown as well. And then we also, at one point I was doing six series a week. It was insane. Seal wow. showdown was on Wednesday. Um, series with Ruxin was on Thursday and then there was a really old very short-lived series called Sealed Saturday with John Moore where we basically like took structure decks and starter decks and did like the whole like $30 like structure deck challenge thing against one another um very short-lived series and I realized it was very short-lived because six series was a uh, that was my limit. I could not do that. So yeah. I'm like, all right, I'm going to cut back on this one. Like, sorry, John, this was fun. That's the only series I have a negative win loss rate in, uh, which is the running joke, which is why I canceled it. Cause I couldn't beat John. But, um, <laughs> John is a YCS else, champion. He is a YCS champion with six samurai and you will never hear the end of it. <laughs> I and know, so <laughs> <laughs> I love John. He's great. Same. So, um, so I scaled it back to five series. And then from that point, it sort of like fluctuated where it went down to like four. And then, uh, then I would like make a new series and then like maybe cancel one. And so then it, it sort of just like went all over the place from that position. But yeah, only within the past couple of years did I actually have outside help. Right. So for the first COVID was 2020 and then history came out a little bit later in 2020. And then Jank maybe was even 2021 potentially. I'd have to look at the first date, but in any case the past three ish years was help and then the seven years prior to that was all me. Right. That's amazing. So, I mean, that's kind of where we're at. And I'm sure a lot of other content creators who are around our size, you know, editors are expensive. They can be pretty expensive. Um, but at this point, what's really cool, and this is like the goal, is that you're a well-oiled machine. Like, you're a full business. So, yeah. you know, with growth comes things like the ability to hire editors. I did hear that your videos were edited by you and talking about the ones, like you said, like up, up until three years ago, they were because the editing is really good on even the, like all the content, the stuff that's, Thank you. that you're putting out now, but even the stuff back then when you were doing it yourself, like the editing is clean. And it's one of the things that makes me try harder, uh, from maybe some of the other YouTubers who just kind of like, you know, speak and duel or whatever. And that's kind of it. I put in that little extra step. Like I enjoy editing because I feel like not only do you get to, 
express your creativity, but it's also kind of a part of your personality comes through in editing. Like who you are, you could be funny in ways that, you know, your sense of humor is unique to you, right? So yeah. things that I find funny, I will insert clips and things like that into my videos. And I'm not saying that my editing skills are anywhere near the crazy. I use CapCut, right? Very basic stuff. Um, but Bruh. it is... It, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love. Listen, Bruh. I use this. <laughs> this is favorite, oh. favorite button. <laughs> Somebody has to take it away from. Like, this and, and this has got to be racist. There's no <laughs> this, way. This is like <laughs> I use no this on stream like all the time. As soon as people start talking about black if wings versus white wings, that one too. Yes, <laughs> all the SpongeBob ones. That stuff to me is so fun. And again. This is someone who I just started doing all of this. Um, 2023 was when we started making a Yu-Gi-Oh content. And I didn't even sure. know that I would like doing this. I didn't know that I would find passionate. And now that I'm doing it, I, it's one of the things I love doing more than like anything else. It is very time consuming. So I respect you a lot yeah. because I can only imagine with you having so many different series and the amount of effort you put into the edits. I know now because I'm an editor, what goes into it. It is a lot of work, Simo. Like it is a yep. lot of work. I look at some of your videos and I'm like, dear God, like I can... I can just, I just know it took hours. Like every single one can take actual hours yep. to put together and people on the outside, right? I used to be a person. I didn't know anything about it because I wasn't intending to be, I was like, I'm just going to be an accountant. I'm CPA. I'm just going to go far in this world. I'm going to be a CFO one day and I'm just going to live off of that. That's going to be my life. That was my goal. So I used to ingest a lot of YouTube content and like most people who probably watch YouTube, you have no fucking idea what goes into the video that you're watching. Even when you're just like seeing, I watch vlogs too. It's one of my favorite types of content that I just, my friends are like, why the hell do you watch someone else live their life? I don't know. I just do. I, it's well, something that I enjoy. But the thing that I realize I really enjoy about it is the editing. Like the way these people, they put songs and they put these like special transitions and cuts and like the B-roll. And then, you know, I love fashion. So they'll do like zoom ins of sneakers and then get ready with me's and stuff like that. I love all that type of stuff. And I respect it so much more now being on the other side of it where I'm doing editing. So I know like to do this took this amount of effort. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so I respect, I respect people like you who've, who've done it for seven plus years and probably still Thank have you. your hands, you know, hands on it because I know how you are. You, you're a very like detail oriented person. I could tell that by the quality of work that you put out. And I, I love that. Of course. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's definitely still a process. It was a process for me to give up that control as well. And I think as someone who now edits their own content, like regularly, you probably also understand that it's like, yep. I'm it's sort of like your baby. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I was uh, I, I was a lot worse with that before. But then once I realized you talked about earlier on the value of time, you realize that you if you want to grow and expand, you can't be doing everything yourself. Correct. You need help. And it will take work to find the right people to help you. I remember I didn't find the editors that I have now, like immediately. It took some trial and error to find the ones that worked best with uh, the way that I do things and learning the way that they do things, um, which is where my communication skills come in very handy. But um <laughs> No, as and so to sort of like maintain the, the degree of quality that I like to have, they'll send me rough drafts. And I actually watch all of my videos before they go live and I will send them like feedback, like change this, like do this, do this, do this. It's not super extensive. It's because right. for the most part, they understand my flow. But very early on, I was like, this is how I like things. And so I was like very heavy handed with the feedback. I'm like, this needs to change this. And then once they started to understand the flow of everything, now they they. I, I know like with Prague now with Sam, like I barely have to tell him to do anything because he just has it down like that. And so I'm grateful that I have him for that. You and me um, are very similar. It's kind of scary. Yeah, I'm, me a little bit. I'm learning that. I know. Yeah. I'm also <laughs> wondering what, like I hate doing this because I don't believe in this at all, but what's your sign? I'm just curious. I'm a Taurus. 
Okay. Okay. Taurus are like very headstrong. They could be very stubborn type of people. One of my best friends oh, yeah. is a Taurus. I don't know if I don't really buy into horoscope stuff, but I was just so curious because the way you're so detail oriented, so meticulous about things and how you said you're heavy handed, especially with giving away, like delegating is hard for us. It sounds like, yes, like it's, much. it's, it's hard to just relinquish, <laughs> relinquish control. You guys know from the, the progression I don't series. Understand. I just don't, I've done, I don't know what episode this is. This is episode Maybe 190 or something of the yeah, podcast. Yeah, it's like one, 190. Which is still, you know, to your guys' credit, that's great that it's, you know, you're at 190. <laughs> so congrats yeah, for yeah. that. Thank you. Th- thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, for, I mean, very. We since we started, I don't think we've missed a week. We've, no. you know, consistently uploaded. Um, and consistency is the most important part, I think. I agree. But that said, I, I say all this to say... I've never fucking heard Fraser talk about a horoscope in my life. I don't understand uh, what's happening right now. Never. I don't I, understand I'm so, what listen, is happening right now. Listen, Kenny, you know me very well. When people who I try to date start asking me about when I was born, one guy literally asked me one time. I remember we were dating. Everything was going fine. I really liked him and everything, right? We got to a yeah. point where he said, when were you born? And I said, oh, I was born November 25th. I'm a Sagittarius. And he was like, no, but like, what time were you born? And I was like, excuse me? He's oh. like, what time were you born? I was like, I don't fucking know. He was Run. like, he was like, well, why don't you ask your mom? I was like, are you fucking serious? I'm not asking my mom when I was born. So you can tell me some random facts off of a website about who I am as a person because of the time of day I was born. I was like, that is insane. And we got into a whole argument. And then that was the end of oh that relationship. God. That shit never got further than that. After he asked me that question, I was like, this is unhinged. I thought that you were like, you know, very surface level. Like, oh, I'm a Sagittarius, whatever, whatever the hell that right. actually means. Yeah, yeah. But when you start asking me like, hey, can you ask your mom, text your mom real quick and say, when, what time of day did I come out of your vagina? Like, no, I don't want to know that. I do not care to know that fact. Like, that is a little too intrusive for me, so. Text your mom at 11 o'clock at night and ask her, ask her what actual time you were born. So, yeah, I I don't usually I was born at p.m. on the dot, which is kind of strange. (laughs) Wait, you were born at what? 2 p.m. on the dot, like not 201, not 159, like two o'clock exactly. Oh my god, so that means that you're like a Capri Sun rising and a scorpion like falling or something like that. All right, I, I'm <laughs> done with him. <laughs> I am so done with him. <laughs> he needs to stop. I do randomly know what time I was born too, just because my mom's talked about it. And it was, I think it's, uh, I think it was 7 a.m. It was either 7 a.m. or p.m. I don't remember, but it was 7 sure. on the dot, but oh, I don't remember oh. if it was a.m. or p.m. I do want to um, I do want to circle back on one other thing that yeah. I, I like to attribute to what got me to where I am. And that is, uh, I think, a couple of things. It's actually two things now that I think about it, but they're both sort of in tandem. We're, t- we're talking about editing and Correct. such. So I also in high school, I had like a small like background in like graphic design. And so I think from like a thumbnail perspective, I was able to like assemble not like the best thumbnails, but by like 2014 standards. But I was able mm-hmm. to like at least make like presentable looking thumbnails just because I had that minor experience doing because uh, I basically just learned Photoshop for two years, like to a degree. Um, and so I think that just helped give like the thumbnails a very like nice, clean, aesthetic look to them early again by those standards of like earlier times. Yeah. Um, but then also one of the things I really enjoyed doing the most in school for projects was video projects. So any opportunity we had where the video project was an option versus like doing you know a paper or whatever it was or if it was solely just a video project for everyone i went in we were my friends and i were always (laughs) making like the dumbest like funniest videos and so i think i always just naturally enjoyed 
uh, video creation and like consuming video content as a medium. Yeah. And so I think that love sort of like carried over into like YouTube as a whole. Yeah. This is all very organic is what it sounds like. Your, your life yeah. kind of organically led you to this point. It's not something that one day you saw how much someone else was making on YouTube and you were like, Oh man, Mr. Beast is making millions of dollars. Let me go and make a YouTube no. channel. Cause that's what a lot of people do. And then obviously they don't stay with it because they're not really passionate about what they're doing. They kind of want the end result, which is the easy part is seeing where somebody is at the end, right? Like anyone can look at where your channel is now with over 300K, but they don't know the part where you said you stayed up and every day after work at 9 p.m. you get home. Who knows what time? Because, you know, there's commutes back then too. Who knows what time you get home? You get off at nine. You're probably getting home later than nine, I would assume, unless you work across the street somehow. And then you're probably eating dinner or, or doing something else, but then you also have to edit these videos and then get them posted and ha- have this schedule. You're doing it three times a week. Um, yep. be doing this type of thing myself where I'm a full-time accountant and we have busy seasons. We have closed periods where it's like, we're working really, really hard. And then also I'm, I'm like, I, I still have to do the podcast. I still have to uh, record, you know, progression series now is a newer thing that we, we started doing because of uh, just how fun it is and watching what you guys have done. And then all the other little things that we do on top of that, where we just put out regular content with Stango and me or Kenny and me and stuff that it all takes a lot to do it. It's and a lot. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a lot of work, but uh, I, like, the, I like what you said there. Go ahead. I wanted to ask while you were doing that thing where you were working uh, mm-hmm. and doing YouTube, you said basically you hunkered down, et cetera. But one thing is that you didn't really get to see or hang out with your friends as much anymore. So after you quit your job, what was that like? Like, I don't know. How long did it take for you to start being able to hang out and actually do stuff with your friends more often than you were before when you were essentially working two jobs between YouTube and your normal job? Um, What was it like just seeing your friends again and hanging out and then being like, hey, like, nice to see you, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, it's it was interesting because I I still remember there were times where. I got texts or like, oh, hey, you want to go hang out? You want to do this, do that? And I just told them, like, I can't. Like, I just don't have time between work and doing this. And even the weekends weren't really a day off. The weekends mm-hmm. were, I can actually work on YouTube stuff. Yep. Yep. And so that so it really turned into like a seven-day work week instead of five. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually relatively recently had a discussion uh, with my best friend Nick about that where I almost sort of felt guilty in a way that... I kind of just fell off the face of the planet for a couple years. And so mm-hmm. we sort of had this heart to heart where I was like almost apologetic that I missed out on so many things that had happened. Like, I didn't know that like he had broken up with like his girlfriend or like, you know, all these things that I had no idea like what was going on with any of my friends. And <laughs> I feel like I almost feel like a bad friend in that way that I sort of just like, just, I was just gone. And, but he told me, and it was, it was, really nice to hear. He said that they understood what I was trying to build. And so even though I was distant, they were still like supporting me and cheering me from the side. And that was just like really heartfelt and heartwarming to hear because I just, I felt so bad that I was just like being this awful friend. Like, I I think one of my friends is actually in the hospital and I'm like, how did I not know this? And he's like, and cause I was just, I was just gone. And so I feel like I missed so much where I could have been there for them but they were like giving me that support the whole time. So I felt like I wasn't really being fair reciprocating that back. And so at, um, I think there was a point, I don't remember the exact moment, but at some point YouTube was going well. I was in my rhythm. I was in my groove. I decided to sort of take the foot off the gas. And I'm like, I want to scale back because I want to, it's, it's going back to what we said about time being the most important thing. I wanted to make uh, not just my friends, but other aspects of my life a priority again, because I felt comfortable with where I was with everything that I didn't have. 
have to go crank it up to 11. I could still be at like a six or seven. Everything's going to be good. The machine's going, but I want to focus on my friends. I want to focus on my family. I want to focus on, you know, significant other things like that. So I felt like I had... The great moth had emerged from the cocoon of evolution. <laughs> yeah. After what is it, four turns? Yeah, four yeah. years. After four years. Yeah, it was like two, but still, yeah. So apparently, yeah. we didn't make it till the fourth end phase. But. <laughs> no, I like what um, you said there. Uh, if I could just say this real quick, the the thing about social media is, you know, a lot of it is shit posting, but there's this one meme slash picture that I see posted every year at some point that says, "Real friends know." That even though we could spend a long time apart, uh, the moment we rekindle that relationship, it's like we never were apart at all. And it's it's always like some kind of paraphrase of that, basically saying that, like what you were talking about, you took time off of relationships that you had with people that you do care about, they're your friends, they're your family, stuff like that, to focus on your career. And it does have a level of guilt built built into it is is so crazy a lot of things that are happening in this podcast episode specifically are very coincidental my best friend from my childhood um his name's eric shout out to you eric he texted me today we haven't seen each other in months he texted me today and was like hey what are you doing today and i was like oh at 4 p.m i have to record the podcast and he was like oh no big i know you're always doing your thing like we'll catch up sometime later and it was like damn i would have loved to just have him come over today and watch jujitsu kaisen and catch up like that's what we do we just kind of he comes over we watch anime or game of thrones or something and we just talk as one of our things and i'm in that space right now that you're talking about where like my life i've cut so much of the things that I enjoy doing and even um, time with people that I love and care about so much because I also want to really focus on this. And the good thing is just like your friends, my friends are very, very supportive of the fact that I am a little bit more absent these last two years because of the podcast and because of the content and because of also me being a full-time accountant still. So it's like, they get it, but that doesn't change the fact that we feel guilty still as people for not being around for things like when somebody might've been in a hospital, somebody might have a kid, somebody might get married and there's like so many things and you're trying to juggle it and be there for everybody, but you also have to make time for yourself. And then your mental health too is a big thing that like a lot of people are talking about nowadays, thank God. But that is also a big part of just living in 2024 is like, you have to take care of your mental. It's a lot on you to just do like manage everything at once. So it's funny that, uh, you know, being distant and then reconnecting. I remember, I don't remember what year it was. I don't remember the exact time period, but there was one point where like me and Frazier, not that there was an argument or anything. We just not in the groove of talking to each other as often. And so like, there might've been like six months or seven months where we just, I don't think talk to each other or text each other. And then a one piece chapter came out. (laughs) And then as if, as if there wasn't seven months of like not communication, we texted each other and had a full conversation, not missing a beat. Talking and then like I think every day after that we were just talking about one piece yep. and like just that one thing had us like talking every day again like just it never hanging stopped. out yeah, yeah it's just like a one piece chapter came out and it changed everything it was like yo what's did you because I think I don't remember if he texted me or I texted him but one of us was like did you read yeah. the newest one piece chapter and it was like and it was like yes and then it was just it just went there, it, it just, just went, went crazy, from yeah. there yeah no that's very true um. Yeah, very relatable thing. Very relatable thing you said there. I'm sure other people experience this too. When you, you know, go crazy in your career and you just really bunker down on it. It's a very common thing. The road is not always an easy one. Uh, yeah. Going back to my whole point about like looking at channels like Mr. Beast and stuff, the top of the top. And you're like, oh, I want I want to do that. And, you know, you see this guy making yeah, all this money grinded. and stuff. For anybody yeah. that doesn't know, before, I mean, he still grinds. But before he was like, I don't know, as however many subs he has now. 
I know he, him and like, I don't know the whole story, but it was like him and four of his friends would like grind on like 12 hour Skype calls every day, just like grinding YouTube. So yeah, it's funny insane. that you mentioned that because if you go back and look at Mr. Beast's like oldest videos, uh, some of them are like the Call of Duty commentary type videos, like I was describing in earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, it's funny that you see that again, when you're doing YouTube at first, sometimes you're just trying to figure out like where you fit into that right. slot. And mm-hmm. uh, and obviously it's been very well for him considering now he's the king of YouTube. So. Yep. It really is. So Simo has given us two things in this podcast specifically that he wanted to highlight uh, in terms of YouTube content creation. You said thumbnails, putting effort into your thumbnails and making those actually look professional. And there's kind of like a, on your channel, there's a uniformity to it, which is really pretty. Yeah. When you're scrolling down, you can kind of see like, oh, this is all this series and this, and it is playlist too, which make it even easier. But even if you just look at it and you go videos and you just see from the newest one and going back weeks, months, years, etc. As you scroll down, there is a certain uniformity to the way things look, which makes it look more like an actual channel. When you think of a right. television channel, which, you know, as we all know right now, cable and things like that are not exactly as big as they used to be. They're kind of going out for things like Netflix, and HBO Max, and all the other platforms that are streaming. Um, your YouTube channel reminds me of like Apple TV. Like I have an Apple TV and when I turn it on, it has all these different icons. And yeah. I'm so used to seeing it because every TV now also has all these same different icons. Um, so when you're looking at Simo's channel, you see like, again, this uniformity with the thumbnails, which definitely is something that I've noticed. And I've been trying to think about a way to do that outside of just, you know, certain ones we do have like, oh, there's like a formula to it, but a lot of them are just so random, which does work yeah. in its own way too. But there is something special about the uniformity of it. So that's one thing, the thumbnails. And then everything you brought up was video editing. And you said that you had done like Photoshop for two years of just like learning that. And that is very clearly seen in your work. So I appreciate you giving those like two nuggets for everybody listening to just know, because I was going to ask you, one of my questions was going to be, what's like the, some of the best advice you could give someone who is looking to either start a YouTube channel or someone who's already doing the YouTube thing, but they're kind of at the early stages of that grind. And uh, yeah, they're looking for some advice on that type of thing. I think I would really just reiterate sort of something I said earlier, where if you, based on your risk tolerance, if it's something you're considering, and this doesn't just have to apply to content creation, this can apply to any alternative like life decision you're right. making. If you're assessing the amount of risk involved and like you figure out like the worst case scenario if things go south, in in a lot of situations, the worst case scenario I think is a lot more like hyperbolic than it would be in reality. And so a lot of people might get in their head and think about like, oh, well, if this like goes bad or if this happens, like whatever, right? Like they start spiraling, like doom spiraling. <laughs> yeah. But I think a lot of people, the 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 issue when they like when they're forming those like logic chains, I mean, they're they're coming from a place of emotion at that point. I think if you look at it from the perspective of like you don't know what the alternative is going to be, like you could spend a you know, countless hours count- mm-hmm. figuring out everything that's going to happen, like best case scenario, worst case scenario, whatever. But at the end of the day, if you're thinking about making that leap, you don't know what the alternative is going to be until you actually try to make that a reality. And like I said before, where if you try and then you do it for so long, you commit yourself to really learning the craft, figuring out like what it is you need to do to be successful or to achieve whatever self-actualization or whatever whatever it is you're trying to do 
if you don't hit that goal for yourself, you can always just go back to whatever you were doing before. It's still most likely going to be an alternative for you anyway. And so I like to just tell people, because so many people tell me like, oh, I want to like start content creation, but I'm afraid of like X, Y, or Z, or like, what if this happens? You don't know until you actually like really put both feet in and really like give it your all. And I feel like that's just something I've constantly had to reiterate for people over and over again. It's like, you really just have to, you have to, you have to see what happens because you don't, you can speculate, you can, it's, you you just don't know. And so I would rather, I would rather live my life trying YouTube and failing than the alternative of I never tried. And I was stuck in that job for like 10 more years doing that. And so but that's something that uh, many people might not be comfortable with, right? So again, yeah. it really depends on like your degree of risk tolerance. But for me, I would rather try and fail than stay with the status quo and never always wonder what if. And so um, it, in my case, it happened to pay off. But I also tried to make every single decision around the fact that I wanted to make it work. And so yep. and again, like we talked about before, I had to sacrifice a huge chunk of time in other places in order to make that happen. And that doesn't mean for every person that's going to be the commitment it's going to take. Some people can be way more successful with way less work. Other people can be way less successful with way more work. It's mm-hmm. a it's a sliding scale, right? But at the end of the day, if you don't if you don't actually go full send, you're never going to know. Yeah, that's so true. I really like the thing that you said about the doom spiraling. That happens to a lot of people. I know and everybody's done it. We're all victim to it at some point where you sure. just you get stuck in that spiral of thinking about what can go wrong and how this, this, and that go wrong. And then whenever that happens to me, eventually I just tell myself, like, I've been here before. I know that, like, you start thinking about everything that could go wrong. And then at some point, you just have to stop worrying about it. And you're like, okay, the next day is going to be the next day. And, like, if something bad happens, you have to deal with it in the moment it happens. Me, like, thinking about it for a week ahead of time, it's not going to help me, really. Because, like, you could think about all of the different ways it could happen. And then when it happens... It's not going to be like any of the scenarios you thought of, right? It'll just be like just kind of different, and then yeah. you just have to deal That's with life. it. However, you have to deal with it, and it's just yeah. that is just yeah, exactly. That's life. So getting out of the doom spiraling, I think, is a a really big thing because that all that can just paralyze you, where you just you feel like you can't go anywhere. Yeah, oh, even, even if you, you start, you take an action. After some time passes, you assess it whether or not that was a good decision, and if you need to pivot and adjust. You do that if it keep, if it's working for you, then no need to adjust. You, you just keep going. It's mm-hmm. it's really just like connect the dots and yeah, make yeah. your own path that works for you. Yeah, I like that advice. That's really good advice. Um, so why don't we back up like a lot now and ask the question that I realized we've never actually asked is how did you even get into Yu-Gi-Oh? Like, where did that start for you? How old were you? Did you watch the anime? Let's do all of that classic. Let's get that out of the way. Sure. We're only an hour and a half in. We're asking yeah, we're, we're literally. You know, it's, it's relevant. It's relevant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was a. I'm a classic Yu-Gi-Oh boomer. I I remember. I still remember. So I had a babysitter watching me. I don't remember where my parents went, but I remember I was I was young, young little Simo, and <laughs> I still remember it was the episode. Uh, it was the very first episode. It was Yugi versus Kaiba. And I still to this day just remember the first time seeing like, you know, the draw your last pathetic card thing, right? Just like classic yep. uh, DM Yu-Gi-Oh. And I, I saw that. I'm like, I'm in. And I was like eight <laughs> years old or nine years old at the time. Right. So then it just started with me getting some cards like Legend of Blue Eyes, Metal Raiders, all that stuff. Um, 
I have a really, I, I talked about how my parents are very supportive of I was going to ask that too. My path. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I have some cool, very unique memories uh, with like the older Yu-Gi-Oh sets. I don't remember contextually how this came to be. I think one of my dad's coworkers uh, happened to have like Pharaonic Guardian blister packs or something like that. And I don't know if he was like selling them or he came into possession of them and didn't really know what they were or something to that effect. My dad like got me four of those blister packs from like his coworker and brought them home from work one day. And I'm like, oh, this is really cool. And then I hit like the jackpot because we pulled like call the haunted chain destruction ceasefire, which is like three out of the four ultras. Like not bad. Like that's yeah. pretty good, right? Just can't really complain. So I have that memory. And then the... <laughs> this this is this is like one of my core memories um e3 Yu-Gi-Oh might remember this because him and i are actually childhood best friends and he was at my birthday when this happened so this was around the release of labyrinth of nightmare and i had all my friends over like you typically do for a birthday party and my parents had gone out and bought labyrinth of nightmare packs just for like everyone who came to the birthday so like everyone got like a couple packs cool. of labyrinth of nightmare so That's like so cool. I, i'm insane. pretty sure like I think someone I think someone pulled a torrential. I think I pulled United We Stand. I think Keegan pulled Dark Necrofear. Damn. Or maybe I'm forgetting the order. Yeah, like I'm like, damn, my parents have hot hands. Yeah. Like, their packs are no, my packs. <laughs> yeah. And I, like obviously we're like kids, right? Like, yes. We're we're just like, you know, we're we're just like I'm United We Stand with goats, right? Yes. Great. Yeah, yeah, Happy like, to see that, a shiny card. Like, precisely. Like that's the kind of Yu-Gi-Oh we're playing at the time. But I, I just oh. remember like every I think there was like six or eight of us. We were just all playing Yu-Gi-Oh till like midnight, basically. Um quick, quick side story to that. I just want to sure. say something I loved about that was the fact that you had people come to your birthday party and your parents kind of got a little something for all because typically you have a birthday party and people bring you a gift. And that right. that reminds me of when I was growing up, whenever you know you would go to school on your birthday. My dad always made sure I got stuff for, like, everybody in my class. It was something that, like, he just wanted me to do, and so I did it. So, like, I would always bring in donuts or whatever for everybody in my class on my birthday. Um, and so your parents buying Yu-Gi-Oh! packs for everybody I thought was really cool. And then the second thing was I had no idea you knew Keegan, like, from childhood. Yes. That, that's a whole I other story in and of itself. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> I told Frazier about this recently. Um, so... At some point, I think I decided I wanted to start playing the game like more competitively because I was kind of just like bodying all my friends who weren't like taking the game as seriously. And so I thought it'd be fun to like actually try to get better at the game or at least find people who were better at the game than I was so I could at least get better that way. And I <laughs> oh, God, um, I remember going <laughs> to my first locals, which took convincing because obviously like your parents leaving your like 11, 12 year old right. son at like a card shop with like a bunch of other, like older, like Can people we talk like, you about yep. Yu-Gi-Oh parents for a second, because <laughs> the more I think about it, Yu-Gi-Oh parents absurd. are some of the most trusting people in the world. My dad left me at 12 years old at a local with 40 yep. year old men. Like I was yeah, surrounded exactly. by random 40 year old men who would say whatever they wanted. They did not filter themselves at, at least my local. They did not filter themselves around nope. me. Yep. I ingested so much stuff. Now, granted, I think I turned out great, <laughs> but like, <laughs> that's my personal opinion. Some of you might feel otherwise, but my dad would just leave me at this local and I would, he would be like, you ready to be picked up? He would text me be like, Hey, it's getting late. You ready to be picked up? And I'd be like, yeah. can I stay a little longer? And eventually he picked me up and he'd ask me how it went. I used to get creamed every week. So I would tell him like, yeah, I didn't really do so hot this week. Or then sometimes I'd be like, yeah, I beat two guys. And then I lost the two guys. I went two and two. So I got a little better. And he, mm -hmm. he'd be supportive, even though, like you said, 
they don't fully understand what we do, but they understand like the bigger picture. They're like, okay, you like yeah. this game, whatever. They don't get the granular yeah. details of like he's some BLS. My um, dad made it real clear he that he did not trust the old men that were there. He was just <laughs> like he was like, and he made it clear to me for me to not to trust them. He was like, listen, he was like, I don't know why I'm forty. And it's funny because now I'm not forty. But like right. I'm not, we're not, we're not that, that far right. away. Yeah, I'm closer right. to forty than twenty. Uh, <laughs> Say that. <so>. But <laughs> just saying. that is crazy. Oh god. But it's funny because now we're like, now the forty year old men. We're gonna be the people <laughs> yes. that the exactly. parents are afraid of. Yes. And like fucking harmless. Like, you know what I mean? Yes, but literally. I a hundred percent understand where our yeah. dads were all coming from, where he was just like I don't know why that 40-year-old man is in there and that fucking car shop playing with these toys, but yeah. I don't trust them and you don't trust them. Don't go anywhere with Your them. Dad don't, is also if you offer food, like you don't take food from them. Like Kimmy's dad is a police officer too. So there's that. Yeah. That kind of gives a little bit more context. And I, sure. I get it from your dad specifically because his life is literally dealing with people who are some of the worst. Yep. So it's just like he's naturally not trusting. But yeah, yeah it's so, great. So speaking of 40-year-old men, so I so this locals taking back. Um, we this is the first locals I've ever been to. I'm I'm, I'm little itty bitty teenage Simo playing my my warrior toolbox deck, thinking I'm like yeah. hot shit, right? And so my first opponent, sit down, forty year old guy, like or like probably like maybe thirty or forty, but he was yeah. old. He was definitely but they he was old. He was he was visibly older than I was. Yes, when we, when you're fifteen and you see somebody who's thirty, they look like they're fifty. So like, yep, exactly. You know. So sit down. I win the die roll. I'm like, okay, cool, and then. Open my grip. I think I just do like a, a humble little T set and pass. Pass the turn. My opponent goes, okay, special Gillosaurus. Sack for catapult turtle. Last will for magical oh, scientist. No. And I got blown the fuck out because no. this was magical scientist FDK wow. format. And I don't know if I'm just like sick in the head, but that just lit a fire under me that I'm like, I love this game. You're like, that's so cool. Because <laughs> you've never seen that win condition before. Right, exactly. Because this is before we really had access. Like this is when like Pojo was probably right. like the, the reputable even... source. For, yeah, exactly. Right. Um. So there wasn't really like YouTube tutorial show you had a magical scientist FDK someone, right? Yeah. Uh, there was just very little information out there. And so uh, I don't know why that excited me that I just got like my ass beat by <laughs> magical scientist FDK. But it was great because then like I, I assembled the cards for that deck. And then like a month later, I went back to the same local. I didn't play the same guy, but then like I got to do it to someone else. And they're like, how does this like 12 year old kid know what the magical scientist FDK is or whatever? That's um, so that, that yeah. was funny. Um, That's part of the magic of old Yu-Gi-Oh! too, is how you yeah. said there was no uh, wealth of information out there that you could just Google and see a combo video. Like, oh. now, if I wanted to jump back into competitive Yu-Gi-Oh!, I could literally do it in a day, essentially, yeah. because I could go to all the competitive channels. So I many look resources. At so many resources and just get everything I need. Um, but back then, like you said, when you saw someone with a cool deck idea, it was actually like some shit from the show because... It'd be like, oh, you activated yeah. my trap cards. Like, what does that do? You know what I mean? Like, you'd be so mm -hmm. shocked that somebody's playing. Like, I got caught by last turn authentically before it was popularized <laughs> as a strategy. I got caught by Wall of Revealing Light last turn when I didn't know about the internet Yu-Gi-Oh! at all. So to sure. me, seeing that for the first time was mind-blowing. It's like, holy shit, I actually lose because you have a Spirit Reaper on the field or a Jog and a Spiritualist on the field and you did like some last turn combo where I can't special summon a guy so I just lose. I've never seen that before. It was it was mind-blowing, yeah. but it didn't make me quit the game. It made me be like, I want to do that to someone now. Yeah, right. yeah, it's exactly. It's hurt, people, hurt people. <laughs> Dude, yeah. I remember going to locals and it was cool because it really was like, 
people would be, and not even that, not even just that people would have this deck that they invested in, and, like, this is their deck, and you would know, like, this guy always plays that, but people would then also identify it, like, should be like, I'm a Fiend player, like, I play yeah. Fiend decks, or I play yeah. Dinosaur decks, or whatever, and you'd go there, and so many people would just have their own identity and own decks they played, like, I remember this one guy that I always identified as having a deck out deck, he was the first person I ever saw with a deck out deck, he's the first person I ever saw with three Needleworms, and it, you know... I couldn't, um, I didn't know anybody else with a Needleworm, and he had three in his deck, Ooh, so it was rich. like, it was like, what the, and it was just so cool having that experience, where I do feel like now, when you play Yu-Gi-Oh!, you kind of just like, you're able to go on YouTube or or whatever, and this is super boomer stuff talking, like, back in my day, but yeah. <laughs> it, it does seem like when somebody wants to play Yu-Gi-Oh!, they, they do just can go on YouTube or just Reddit or whatever, find out what deck they want to play, and then, like, when you go to your local now, like, everybody has, like, a deck that is just like a deck for the format. You know what I mean? Like nobody's playing some weird clown control thing. Yeah. So then, uh, so then fast forward a bit. And I think where I really started like playing more competitively, even though I was still relatively young was like when monarchs were like the thing, you know, like Zaborg, Mobius, Vestalos. Yeah. Um, this is like pre Caius too. So like the, the OG monarks, yep. uh, never grand. We, 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 we don't fuck with Grandmark. Grandmark yeah. never made it. Um, so, I, I remember like getting my first like top eight at a local that I was like really that's when I was like really trying to like actually like keep up with like the good people who actually played the game in the area. Um, and so that was like really cool. And then I remember uh, the, the price of the game just starting to get like a lot worse mm. just because then we slowly graduate into uh, like Dark Arm Return format, yep. right? When Phantom Darkness comes out. And I still remember going to the uh, the sneak peek events when they were... Uh, not like at the local stores ran them, but I'm not sure if they did this by you guys, but the sneak peeks were almost like in giant convention halls Same. and like four or 500 people would show up. The promo card came in like a little paper flyer. Yep. Um, and you get your five packs or if you wanted to play advanced and like try to win more packs, depending on how well you did. So it was almost like a, like a better locals in that way. You could do that instead. Um, it, I, I thought sneak peeks were a lot of fun when they uh, were hosted that way, but I liked them too. You know, I like, was in a college, college uh, campus. They was like mm -hmm. an auditorium rented out for that but it was huge they were not small local sized things they were big events yeah it was almost like regional sized events yeah. but like for a sneak peek but it was almost just like a sort of meetup for Yu-Gi-Oh players right because mm -hmm. you come you could you could get the new cards or you could play or you could just trade or just hang out with other people so it was it was fun it was cool and I wish that they sort of still did that but obviously you know things are different now things are way um, different and so then Phantom Darkness comes out, uh, Dark Arm is a thing. And I remember, I think like the closest I got when I was younger, like I almost topped a regional with uh, with Perfect Circle. And I was very grateful because I had friends at the time who had way more money than I did. And they lent me the pieces of Perfect Circle to play it. So I sort of have like a soft spot for Perfect Circle because it's just like a lot of fun. And I was really trying hard because I'm like, okay, I can't make an excuse that I can't afford the cards because my friends let me borrow them. So now I have to like do well. And so I think I was like one win shy of actually like topping that event which was which is cool um but then phantom darkness dark arm comes out and dark arm return is just like the only deck to play and at that yep. point just because it's funny the price discourse currently at the time of recording this video that's going on surrounding bonfire and you know fire kings and all that's going on but uh yeah back in the day dark arm return that was like the deck to play and if you didn't have like <laughs> you know a bunch of hundred dollar bills to drop you yeah. were just going to get completely decimated and so i got very disenchanted uh with that just being because at the time i'm 2008 so i'm like 14 at this point wow and obviously like don't have a job or anything and i'm just getting clapped by dark arm all yeah, day the power creep uh, is real 
It was. Yeah. And so I, at that point, I just, I, I kind of just quit because I said, maybe the game will get better at some point, but it's just, this is not the moment for that right now. And so I took a six year hiatus from 2008 wow. to 2014. I still sort of kept up. Like I watched like some, uh, like world championship footage if it came out or, um, if, you know, some new sets got released, maybe like my friend, I told you who got me the blue eyes Exodia deck, he might poke me and be like, oh, hey, do you see synchros are a thing or like Xyz are a thing now? Because I completely jumped ahead to whole summoning mechanics when I got back into the game. Yeah. Um, so I was still like aware of what was going on, but I wasn't just too uh, in the know. But yeah, yeah that's, my, prices, that's my little history. The prices Yu-Gi-Oh cards definitely make it rough to keep up with the current game. That's something that I do really appreciate about the old school formats becoming more and more popular, like Goat and Edison, and uh, even now with this 3v3 Tengu. Um, we haven't talked about that yet. Is that what's so cool was it, it makes it so that you, the format is locked. Edison format, like there's people that can play Edison format because they know that a new ban list isn't going to come out to completely ruin their deck, and then they have to spend a couple hundred dollars on the new pack to get the new card and all that. Like you can make your deck, and even though the cards are getting more expensive because it's becoming more popular, it is still a wildly more um, cost-effective format to play than modern. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to keep updating it. I have friends from locals who literally say that exact thing. I have a guy who, he said, I've always wanted to play Yu-Gi-Oh, but I never could play it in person outside of, you know, a virtual sim like Dueling Book or Dueling Network because I can't keep up with the ever-changing decks cycling in and out, my cards getting banned, having to spend a bunch of money that I don't have on a new set. So once Edison became a thing in the last couple of years at our locals, he was like, now I'm a Yu-Gi-Oh player. He's like, I love this game. I, I will play it. He, he loves GBs. It's like his favorite deck. So he's like, I love this game now and I can play it. And I don't have to worry about my cards being banned because this format is locked, right? So that's kind of a mm-hmm. unique yep. thing about retro Yu-Gi-Oh that it, it yeah. brings in a whole new audience of people who might have not been able to keep up with like bonfires and whatever other crazy crap is happening right now i think what a lot of people may not realize about older Yu-Gi-Oh as well and i'm talking about when it was initially played not like looking at it through the lens of a retro format but prior to dark arm dragon and i'm talking about like the game being price prohibitive there was light of destruction which was like light sworn but like light sworn wasn't even like the best deck it was just like a good deck yep and which then is crazy to think when you look at which, it now. Right, exactly. And then you go prior to that, and you have, like, Gladiator's Assault, which, like, Gladiator Beasts were not really that expensive, just because Heraclinos came out in Phantom Darkness, or a, a set later, so it wasn't in the original set. But, like, even if you wanted to play Glad, Glad wasn't even, like, too bad. Like, I think Geyserus might have been, like, really the only money card at the time. Yeah. Um. But point being, the only, like, expensive cards leading up to like once we get to dark arm return teledad format are like mali d draw card trooper riza from force of the breaker card trooper was like 40 dollars. yeah but like even like slightly before that it, everything like i think the most expensive card prior to like that era every i think the most expensive card may have been like riza at 20 bucks yep that's what and, i yeah. and cyber yeah, yeah. I, and stuff yeah cyber dragons were like like 15 to 20 for the supers i think and that like honestly everything else had like a decent number of reprints by that point where it was pretty easy to get in i I remember like having to like convince my parents to buy rises on ebay because i needed (laughs) um but yeah i feel like those were really the only money cards from back then because everything else had like structure deck reprints or like multiple reprints by that point where it was it was easy for anyone to get in yeah no i agree it definitely was easier to get in um prior to prior to a certain point I think the set is called Strike of Neos, maybe. What's the set that Ilblah comes out of? 
Uh, that's tactical evolution. Tactical evolution. So this yeah. is when I recall. That is kind of where it started. Yeah. Ill blood. I remember ill bloods being fucking. Listen, bro. I, I packed one the year <laughs> ill blood came out. The the weekend it came out. So I was at one of those college campuses for a sneak preview. So I guess it was tactical evolution sneak preview. Ill blood comes mm-hmm. out. I pack it. I think I got the worst secret rare in the entire fucking because at that time there was like eight secret rares in a pack, and I assumed yeah. that the one that I got was Jim the worst. Yeah, I was so mad. I was like, oh my god, I got this corny. I didn't think his artwork looked cool, like Oogie Boogie yeah. or whatever, but I did yeah. not want him. He was not the one that I wanted because that's the set. Is that, is that the Crystal Beast set or something? It's a Rainbow Dragon set, yeah. Yeah, so I wanted like that type of stuff. I wanted the crazy expensive cards that everybody was going for. Illblood mm. to me, and I wasn't competitive at the time, Illblood to me was like not it. So I packed it and then there was a SJC, I believe Boston, and Steve Silverman came up to me and was like, yo, I know you packed an Illblood like at the sneak preview or whatever. Do you mind if I borrow it for this tournament? So I'm at this SJC in Boston or whatever. And he's like, ask me to borrow it. And I looked up the price of it and it was over a hundred dollars. Yep. And I could not understand why it was that much. So I let him borrow it. And it ended up being the best deck for that event, apparently, because it was like Cardison yeah. Return, Illblood.deck. And it was crazy. Then my mind couldn't wrap itself around the idea that Yu-Gi-Oh! had gotten so expensive that in order to get Ill Blood, you had to spend over a hundred dollars to get it. Then it was this whole thing with like the vendors and like if they're allowed yep. to put cards out at a certain price. And like it was just so weird because, like you said, up until that point, to me, cards were never more than like 40 bucks max, usually. Like 40 right. bucks is like the extent of where I'm going to spend, and most people were going to spend for a card in their deck. Now we're at and that's 100. like a BLS. Like Correct. for clarification, this is like a BLS or a Ryza or like a bomb card right. for, yep. for whatever deck that you're playing. So you'd only typically need like one or two at most. Exactly. Like one, you know, one yeah. of something at the time. But then, and this is the beginning of Konami realizing, oh, if we print secret rares as like cards that you need, like for your deck, they become chase cards and chase cards yep. equals money. And then it became a whole, the game chain, like Dark Arm was probably the most egregious because Dark Arm was $300 at its peak, maybe even a little more at Costa Mesa uh, uh, when L- Lazaro Bolito won that trophy that has like all of the prize cards up until yep. that point. But I remember I did not have the money to afford Dark Arm Dragons. So I played like a budget Diamond Dude Turbo deck because I had Plasmas, I had Diamond Dudes, I had d Dedra- I was lucky enough to have d and Malicious. Like Cyber and Valley and stuff? Yeah, I just played my own budget and I had D-Mock. Yeah. So I, I didn't have the dads, but I was playing Diamond Dude Turbo without Dark Arm, which was way inferior to the, the real version that Chris Perovic played. Um, yep. But I just remember thinking... I'm never going to be able to afford Dark Arm. Like, it's never going to happen because a, a teenager, $300 plus each in the Philadelphia one area. Of them. For one of them, bro. And then when you would open your binder to people who had them, like the older guys who had money, they would want to trade you, but of course they wanted to destroy you. So one guy yeah. looked at my binder and closed it and was like, I'll just take the whole thing. And I was like, what? And he is like, I mean, he started like flipping through the pages like flippantly. He's like, there's not really much here. I'll say like 30 bucks this page, 40 bucks this page. And he like closed the back and was like, yeah, if you give me the whole binder, I'll give you a dark arm. And I was like, that doesn't even seem, I was like, no, I'm, I'm good, man. It's fine. Like, I'll just take the binder. He's like, you sure? I was like, yeah, I'm sure. Like, Are you that, sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. So that, that I'll take your whole collection. Taste. It left a bad taste in my mouth. At, the, at that same time that you're talking about, Simo, it left a bad taste in my mouth too because I knew, and, and this is when I started to have my competitive desire, I knew that I wanted to play the good deck, but I just couldn't yeah. afford it anymore. Yeah. Very interesting yeah. time. But I, uh, After Master Duel came out, I wanted to build my Master Duel deck in real life just to, like, just to have it and like maybe play it here and there. Um, my Master Duel deck in real life was way above my... Pa- I was like, I'm not buying these cards. I don't remember which pot it is, but it's one of the pots, and they were like 150 each, and I was like, okay, well, 
Like prosperity that's absurd. Like I'm not public prosperity. Yeah, I was like, I'm not actually playing competitive Yu-Gi-Oh. I just want to build it for fun. And like, I'm not spending yeah. six hundred dollars on three cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different different world um, that we live in now. It's kind of expected. Like the community just accepts that this is what Yu-Gi-Oh is now. So when yep. expensive cards come out, yeah, people do start Twitter circles and go crazy for a second. But everyone just kind of like they 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 don't stop it they instead partake in it right and so when you do that it's like that's going to continue to cycle and that's you know that's a different conversation but yeah cards are expensive now i'm glad to be an edison player i don't really have to think about the price of cards unless i want to make the max rarity and that is an egregious thing too but for people who love their max rarity cards and are willing to pay for them you have that option which is great about edison because you can choose i can just play black wings with commons and it will work the exact same way that the guy who has ulti dark arm and everything foiled out uh but i want to start to wrap this up a little bit simo i know we've taken up a good chunk of your time and i appreciate you coming on um there are so many things that we could talk about i'm realizing this could go on forever and ever and ever uh so at some point you know it would be great to do another like collab type situation with you have you on another day in the future uh but yeah i appreciate you coming on go ahead can we start wrapping up i'll have two quick things one obviously i want to say if there's anything else that you've wanted to say if you want to like get it out and then two i have to ask what your favorite anime is Ooh uh well for your first or, question if, if yeah. you can't figure out favorite you know you can give a rough top three with no order sure uh first question i don't think there was anything else i mean we've just been having a good time just yeah, like yeah, we yeah. live in the old days this has been a lot of fun so thanks for having me uh favorite anime Ooh. uh i'm gonna be one of those basic bitches that says Final alchemist uh just because i just answer. don't think that's like i just i just think it's like the perfect anime i'm sorry it just like it hits all the right notes uh, my second favorite is actually something I've been watching recently, as a matter of fact, uh, is Hunter Hunter. I actually think oh, Hunter Hunter is oh, yes. so I, good. I am I am so the funny story behind that is uh I really like the band who has the the song that plays during the ending credits in the first season of Hunter Hunter. That's mm-hmm. like one of my favorite bands. But I never knew that that's where like most people know that band from. I discovered the band first. So everyone's mm. like, oh, Timo's a Hunter Hunter fan. And I'm like, I've never seen this never. in my life. Oh, it's so, awesome. So, the funny part about this is Keegan E3 Yu-Gi-Oh hits me up literally two seconds after, because this is a tweet thread that's going on. He, as soon as he sees this, he tweets me or not tweets me. He texts me. He's like, I'm coming over right now. And we were watching this because apparently that that's his awesome. favorite anime. Yeah, so that literally is- that whole day, we just watched like the whole first season. And I'm like, I've missed this like my whole life. I'm like, this show is incredible. And so we're, we're not even done with it yet. We're like halfway through the fifth season, I think with the chimera ants and everything. Oh. And I'm like up there with like, again, with like full metal. I'm like, this is like a masterpiece in anime. This show is incredible. It and like, I know so like all good. the people are like, Oh, Steamboat's a shonen fan, whatever. No, 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 is, no. The writing is incredible. This, the, the character development, the pacing of the show. And yep. this also goes for full metal. Um, you mentioned Jujutsu Kaisen. I had a lot to say about that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um i just i i think if i were to make like an anime tier list like those two have to be s tier like definitively Listen, anybody that has anybody that wants to speak negatively about like the shonen genre or like if like here's the thing hunter hunter is just i don't care what genre you put it in the writing is um, like it's so it's incredible good yeah the character the writing the arcs like it is so gripping and just like the stu- the, the the emotions and feelings it put me through is yeah. There's a feeling that I get like from it's... the narrator specifically in Hunter Hunter when that guy's voice comes on narrating what's happening. It literally gives me chills sometimes. Okay, like the narrator yeah. from Hunter Hunter is such a unique thing because most anime don't actually use a narrator 
and actual scenes that are happening. And usually the narrator is an introduction or previously on the last episode of whatever. Like and Pokemon. Correct. Yeah. And then the narrator, you never hear from them again. But in Hunter Hunter, the narrator interjects literally at the exact time of something part happening. part of the story. Part like, of the story. And the, it's so... The narrators, I, I've often said... My favorite Hunter Hunter character is the narrator. Like I've, often, <laughs> <laughs> I've often said that. Yeah, no. And JJK, what did you what did you have about JJK? I'm just curious because I wonder if it's similar to what me and Kenny feel about JJK and some of the newer anime that have come out. I feel like that show's such a shit show. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> I, okay, all right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna mildly go off, and maybe maybe you'll agree or disagree, or maybe or maybe everyone listening to this is gonna cancel me after this. <laughs> no, I, no, no. I'm gonna start by saying this. I really liked that show in the beginning. I thought in the beginning it had a good premise. I'm like, okay, like I'm interested. Like, let's see where this goes. But then at some point, and I, I don't the all the whole drama surrounding the animation company and Mapa, all of that. Yeah. I don't really that doesn't help with all of this. <laughs> yeah. But that, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't feel like I can fairly omit that because I feel like it just kind of is one node out of everything else that is just wrong with the show now right i feel like i feel like the the pacing of that show is completely erratic where sometimes i want way more development of the characters and other times i'm like okay like we can like sort of like move on here right so it's it it seems (laughs) like it's like it's very staggered in terms of like how the pacing of the show is uh the characters are just all over the place. We're like, all of a sudden, six new characters come in, two die, and then two <laughs> new ones come in, and then you're like, who the fuck is this? Bruh. And then they're dead, so like, it doesn't even matter, right? So I'm like, did I miss something? And then you yeah. think to yourself, is there something, like, did I miss watching a couple episodes? But you didn't. That's just the way the show is. The so then you're like going through this like process of re-self-discovery. Like, why am I watching this? But then it's like a train wreck where you can't stop watching it because it's like, I want to know like what's going to happen next. And I really want to be invested. But each episode I watch, I'm disappointed because yeah. it's like not up to the expectation of like what it's set in the beginning. And then the last few episodes, I'm not sure like where you guys are at we're, or anything, we're but current, like I just current. okay, you're caught up. Okay, I literally two, just yeah. I watched the last few episodes last night, as a matter of fact, and I'm just like, what? I'm just like, I feel like the show doesn't even know where it is anymore. I feel like the writer oh, is like thinking yes. they're like trying to take people like on this philosophical For like existential chess. journey. Yeah, and then I'm just like no, like just not at all. Like this is just by far and away like I I I. I don't really want to like disrespect the people who like the show, but like, I'm sorry. Like you need a better taste in anime. If you think this (laughs) is good, I'm sorry. You go off. I want to say, so I will say (laughs) in general, um, I'm a bit higher on JJK than I started. I bit opposite of you. I started very low on JJK. Same me and him. The first episode of the podcast we did, we shit on it. Yeah. I I shit on a lot. I started very low and I've gone a bit higher. So I'm a bit higher on it now, but most of your sentiments, I do still agree with. I th- like it's all the cri- a lot of the criticisms you have are still criticisms I levy against it. But I also levy against a lot of newer shonen like uh, Black yep. Clover or Demon Slayer. Yep. So as you're going off on JJK and you're saying people might cancel you, don't worry, you're fine because <laughs> okay. when I tell you, okay. me and Fraser dragged we season, drag. season three of Demon okay. Slayer. So and Demon Slayer is everyone's baby. Oh but yeah. Season we three, dragged that shit. I was just dragging. So it. I was. Just, I, I want to uh, say this because Simo, what you're saying is is actually something that um me and Kitty have been coming 
to terms with with just the way anime is now and we've chalked mm. it up to instead of because at one point we were just we realized we were just kind of shitting on like all the new season stuff we were just doing that and yeah. i didn't i don't want to i never want to make people feel bad about what they like enjoy what you like if you like something by all means like it love it in my opinion mm-hmm. i'm one random black guy in philadelphia in front of a microphone right like you don't have to take my <laughs> opinion as gospel um but what we realize is we just had to chalk it up to this is just the way new school anime is built. It's this really bad read fast pacing. It's this really fast pacing. It's this really crazy character development or lack thereof. It's crazy. The animation's always insane. Like Chainsaw Man, Demon Slayer, JJK, they have like usually phenomenal animation compared to, you know, things that are older, but that's just like with the times. That's the technology. It's mm-hmm. not really, it's not really anything like, you know, that's just 2024 anime. Um, but I have a all the criticisms that you've levied against JJK, we've literally said the exact same thing in our last two JJK podcast episodes. And so to make it where it's not a fest of me and Kenny just attacking it over and over again, because that's what it that's what it used to be. That, that's what it would that would have turned into. That's yeah. what it, we've said. This is just what new anime is. New shonens are nowadays. And we have to accept it. So once you sit down and you accept, OK, this is what it is. It's going to be fast. The character is going to get outrageously strong for no real reason. Like Itadori, he's just going to be one day doing black flashes at will. And he just learned about it a month ago. And you have to accept that though. Like, well, Hunter Hunter, they learn about Nen in like the 22nd episode. And right. Before, it takes so long. It takes before so long. That, it's like, it, it's crazy how good it is. It's, but oh. the pacing is better compared to something like Dragon Ball or Dragon Ball Z, right? right? Where it's like, it's a, 50 episodes for them to go like yes. for Goku to go it's like regular to shoot exactly yeah, so yeah. it's like a fine balance that needs to be struck but like JJK is like oh so there's this thing called Black Flash oh he does a Black Flash <laughs> three like, times like, yeah. literally I'm like okay usually when there's a show and there's like the god ability usually it takes like at least 10 episodes before the god ability shows up but like no all of a sudden like it's there was no build up he breaks up. the like, record he, he breaks, breaks the, the record, record. The exactly. and I'm like <laughs> They're like, there's the the most black flashes anybody's ever done in a row is like four. And then in the next episode, he does like 10. Excuse me? Yeah. It's wild. That so So I I want to say something. I obviously know you, and I think most people know you for your Yu-Gi-Oh! content. However, after that rant you just did on JJK, I'm realizing something that I have to have another conversation with you, whether it be on YouTube or on this podcast, where it's not about Yu-Gi-Oh! specifically, unless it's the anime. It's just about, like, anime or comic books or movie. Or, because I that rant right there didn't come from someone who casually watches right. a show. That rant came from no. somebody that can, like, get busy and watch an anime in a weekend. You know what I mean? Like, that was I, that rant you just did might have been my favorite piece of content you've ever did. That rant you did on JJK might have been my favorite thing I've ever seen you did. I enjoyed like, it quite a bit. That, and that's going to be like the preview clip oh, for, the, for the whole rest of the thing. I cannot <laughs> like, wait. Simo rants about how JJK is the worst piece of I love it. I love it. Ever. Honestly, Kenny, that might be a good real idea. <laughs> we might have to turn that into like a clip or something because that was really good. I was just dying and Simo's just going off on JJK. But yes, thank you again so much for stopping by 
Spotify podcast. It was a pleasure to have you, honestly. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you are definitely inspirational to me and a lot of other people in this space. Me, Kenny, everybody who honestly watches your channel. Like I said, Stengo brought it to us, and then we've been watching ever since. So it's just really awesome mm-hmm. to see you continue to grow and drop these nuggets on us like this so that now people can hopefully listen to this and get something from it that's not only entertaining but educational as well. Um, so this was really good content. Uh, real quick for the people who are on our Patreon, as always, I want to give you guys... Before you read it, I just want to say, I'm not going to be able to read out the second half because I, I literally can't... Pre- with the way the recording setup that's is... That's fine. I will do, I will I do all of them. Yeah, I can't read the second half right now because I can't bring up the list. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. I can take care of it. But for everyone who is on our Patreon at the party member or higher tier, thank you guys so much for rocking with us. I hope you especially enjoyed this one. This one comes out early for you guys. Uh, but we have Connie, the Cult of Volvi, Leon... Let me get to page two. The Little Spaceship That Could, Xavier, Hylian, Dimitri Barnes, Father Multiverse, Dom the Goat, Giovanni Avalos, Alex Flamer, Henri Reynolds, Dan Vrabel, Dennis Milburn, First to Home, Mitchell Naus, Vince Marquette, Dallas Bailey, KJ, Roz Weiss, The Guy Who Stays 10 Minutes After Four, Sarah Maria, Alex Ahern, Philip Campa, Kyle Batoho, Guacus Extra, Sugal, Vicky Venomon, Elijah Barfault, Cairo King, aka True Hero, Tyler Tadeo, Volvi the Mega Monarch, Enraged Peacock, Janitor 215, RIP Ron Ron, Thomas Rue, Jeff Strain, Brian Moore, Ty P336 is the Soul King, baby. Gingerilla, John Starr, the famous tattoo artist. I'm just a little nasty sometimes. Frozen Go, <laughs> Frozen Go Dojo. She was like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> oh, I've had way worse. I've had way worse patrons. Oh, this me. is hilarious. So, Frozen Go Dojo, Auntie Did Nothing Wrong, or Auntie Did Nothing Wrong, David Villarreal, Next Tastic, B Dog 23, Felipe Glenn, Hershey Bar, Impoister, Romeo, Junk Sink, Ron Snyder, Tyler. Frazier and last but not least our newest patron Sasha Egger thank you guys so so much for every single one of you Uh, and everyone who's even at the lower tiers even if you don't hear your name in the shout outs we still appreciate every single person who has subscribed to the Patreon at any point if you're still active or not we appreciate it and thank you guys again so so much as I always say do the things that make you happy including creating content and learning from one of the best one more shout out I want to give before Simo does his final sign off but it's a shout out for Simo. I don't know if you can see it because the art is kind of low. And if you see the video version of the podcast, but the art I have behind us right now is the wallpaper that Simo, I believe you had commissioned for the progression series part one ending, right? Yes. And so I want to shout out. I don't remember. I just saw the name of the artist, but I can't look at it right now. So I don't. So I'll let you shout it out if you want. But this art is incredible. <laughs> like, it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, the, the name is escaping me at the moment, which I feel really bad, Um, but they are an incredibly talented artist. I actually don't think they make art or do commissions anymore, which is really tragic because I think this, um, quick side note, I know we're wrapping up, but this person actually, I have a hand sketched copy of rise of the storm monarch, like full body. And it's like signed by him. And he gave it to me, uh, when I met him on one of my Europe trips, when I did my fan meetups in Europe. And so that's like one of my, like, it's like the most detailed, like, sketch of rise of the storm monarch that like you'll awesome. ever see i'm gonna see if i can and find so, the game real quick yeah and so uh i just wanted to they they do incredible work i i don't know you know why they stopped but i it's it's tragic that they did but they they did an incredible job and so yeah, no, this looks awesome can you send it to me today yeah. and i was like oh is that first of all i started noticing a lot of things like there's a, a cast of a dragon in the bottom right there's like yep. there's a lot of easter eggs if you if you yes. watch the full series like start to finish there's like the bus ticket on battery man fuel cell that was in like gauges uh 
There was one episode where Gage like pulled up a, fo- a folder for something and there was like a picture of a bus ticket or something. <laughs> so like we even put like just random stuff like that in there. Imperial Order guy is holding like ominous that. fortune telling from like the, the Labyrinth of Nightmare or, or whatever or Legacy of Darkness episode or whatever. Just a lot of like cool Easter eggs just to, you know, for all the fans I, who enjoyed the show. I got it. I, I looked it up on my phone. It's at friend Kai. Oh, Frankie. Frankie, Frankie yes. art, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Frankie like, art. He doesn't thank you. I'm like, anymore. I'm like, it's not Frank. I'm like, it's, but it's something close to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Frankie. Yes. Thank you, Frankie. Um, for everyone else listening, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I'm still a growing fledgling YouTuber, so I'd really appreciate <laughs> any of your, uh, your any subscriptions would be very kind to grow my fledgling audience. So I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, please subscribe it. to Simo if you are not already. Um, you don't stop the grind. You don't stop you don't, the grind. You don't. That's right. That's right. Definitely give a shout out. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have his YouTube channel linked in the description of this podcast. So if you see us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcast from, there will be a clickable link to Simo's YouTube channel in the description. And again, thank you so much, King, for stopping by. And thank we you. will catch you guys in the next one. Peace. Good night. Thank you.